God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You are listening to Outer Brightness, a podcast for post-Mormons who are drawn by God to walk with Jesus rather than turn away. Outer brightness, outer brightness, outer brightness, outer brightness. There's no weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth here, except when Michael's hangry, that is, hangry, that is, hangry, that is. Welcome to this episode of the Outer Brightness Podcast. We were all born and raised in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, headquartered in Salt Lake City, Utah, more commonly referred to as the Mormon faith. We may use nicknames or abbreviations of the church, such as LDS, Mormon, etc., but not in an attempt to be pejorative or insulting, but as a reflection of our personal experiences as Latter-day Saints, where these terms were used interchangeably in reference to ourselves and or the church. All of us have left that religion and have been drawn to faith in Jesus Christ based on biblical teachings. Some might consider us sons of perdition, the inheritors of outer darkness who supposedly knew the truth and rejected it. The name of our podcast, Outer Brightness, reflects the Gospel of John, chapter 1 in the Bible, specifically verse 9, which calls Jesus the true light, which gives light to everyone. We have found life beyond Mormonism to be brighter than we were told it would be, and the light we have is not our own. It comes to us from without, thus outer brightness. Making the transition from Mormonism to broader Christianity can be exciting, scary, confusing, challenging, and ultimately life-giving. Our aim here is to share our journeys of faith and what God has done in our lives in drawing us to His Son. We'll have conversations about all aspects of that transition. The fears, challenges, new beliefs, surprises, and joys. We're glad you found us, and we hope you'll stick around. I'm Matthew, the nuclear Calvinist. I'm Michael, the ex-Mormon apologist. I'm Paul Bunyan. Let's get into it. All right, Fireflies, welcome back to the Outer Brightness podcast. Uh, In this episode, I and the other Sons of Light will be discussing an article by an aspiring LDS scholar. Jackson Washburn is here to discuss his article titled Moroni's Theology of Grace, Perfection, and Sanctification. Jackson, welcome to the Outer Brightness podcast. Hey, thanks, guys. I'm happy to be here. Great. We're glad you're here. Thank you. Before we jump into your article, um, why don't you tell us a bit about what you're up to these days? Are you still at Arizona State University? What are you up to this summer? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think with most of us, uh, COVID-19 has shaken up life a little bit. And so uh, though I was originally scheduled to um, have a study abroad program in Armenia this summer, uh, where um, I would be doing an intensive language course for eight weeks, uh, you know, with the, the travel, uh, you know, pro- prohibitions and, you know, safety rules in place, um, that program got canceled. And so instead, um, I am happily doing an internship that I just started here in Salt Lake City uh, with the Joseph Smith Papers Project, which is uh, the LDS Church's uh, foremost um, historical uh, department and organization devoted to uh, the preservation and publication and and research of Joseph Smith's uh, uh, papers and documents and, you know, basically uh, all, all the major publications or texts that are relevant to him throughout the course of his life. So um, I believe that uh, organization uh, is just wrapping up. Um, we're getting to the tail end of publishing. Uh, I shouldn't say we. I'm just an, uh, an unpaid intern. But 
the Joseph Smith papers um, is, uh, you know, beginning to wrap up. Uh, they've published uh, uh, close to two dozen volumes now uh, uh, about uh, that are reprints of uh, his revelations or scriptures or letters or legal papers, anything like that. Um, so uh, they're almost done with that. They started uh, um, uh, in the early 2000s. And so, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a great organization. They do very good work. And as far as, uh, um, the qualities of transparency and academic rigor and things like that go, um, they are top notch in the field of Mormon studies. So I feel I'm grateful to intern with them. I just started this week. Um, so that's what I'm doing this summer. Uh, so I've relocated to Provo, Utah for the summer. Oh, that's very interesting. So what do they have you doing there as an intern? Um, so right now it's virtual, right? Because there's still um, some social distancing measures in place. Uh, so because I just started this week, uh, it's just mainly preliminary stuff, getting familiar with the various uh, research sites and resources um, and doing a bit of, a, I guess, like preparatory work. Um, so for instance, this week I was given an article by uh, Richard Bushman uh, that he published in the 1970s uh, in the Enzyme magazine, which is the LDS Church's uh, mainstream magazine for its members. Uh, it was about the life and character of Joseph Smith, and I was told, okay, read this and critique it, you know. And for those who are familiar with Richard Bushman, he's the author of Rough Stone Rolling, which is the foremost biography of uh, Joseph Smith. And so... Richard Bushman is a preeminent uh, historian of Mormon history in the United States. And, um, you know, so there's a bit of imposter syndrome going on uh, on my end there, uh, told to critique his work. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, just kind of stuff like that, They're throwing me into the waters, getting me familiar with uh, texts. And um, so I can't say exactly uh, how the internship will develop as I continue, because you know, I don't know what my future assignments or things like that will look like, especially with the social distancing me measures in place. But, um, you know, I'm just looking forward to the uh, professional development, uh, the networking and uh, the research opportunities that it will lend me. Yeah, that's great. That's really interesting. Good opportunity. Mm -hmm. So back to back to Arizona State in the fall then? Yes. Online, you uh, think? Yeah. Uh, no, not not online. Uh, it'll be in person. They gave us some guidelines today about what how they think that'll look. Um, so, you know, wearing masks will be mandatory and um, there'll be, you know, various resources available through campus. But yeah, this this uh, upcoming semester, I'll be back at uh, Arizona State. I live on campus in Tempe. Um, and uh, so I'm getting two degrees there. I'm in, in my undergrad. Uh, so I'm getting a degree in religious studies and history. Um, and I'm also going to be doing my undergraduate honors thesis this upcoming semester, uh, where I'm going to be studying, uh, the Armenian Arizonan, uh, community. Um, a lot of them are immigrants. And so I'm going to be doing my research project on how they understand and conceptualize, uh, their Armenian identity outside of Armenia. And, uh, so I, I look forward to that. I'm also going to be applying to grad school next semester. So, you know, basically it's just going to be a, a pretty busy semester for me, but I'm heading into my senior year of college. Wow. Yeah, that's definitely a busy, busy semester. That sounds like a really interesting honors thesis, though. 
Mm-hmm. I, I joked on my mission. Uh, uh, I served a mission in Armenia, and uh, I, I joked that over there I would be teaching uh, Armenian Armenians or Armenian Armenians, right? <laughs> so uh, unfortunately, uh, that kind of went over the heads of all the missionaries there. But uh, I thought it was funny. <laughs> yeah, it is funny. It is funny. <laughs> That's a good one. I, I like that one. I approve. I, I think you're a bit young for these dad jokes, though. Right. Right. <laughs> I mean, it makes sense for me and Paul to be using them, but uh, wait, what are you throwing in with me now? That's right. Uh, you you wish you were in my cohort group, right? Yeah, yeah, something like that. I mean, that's past. I'm I'm over it now. Rather live twenty more years, anyways. <laughs> <laughs> so you ready to get into into your article, Jackson? Sure. All right. So so you wrote this article and. Uh, Let's see, it was called Moronite's Theology of Grace, Perfection, and Sanctification. Really enjoyed reading it. In the opening paragraph of the article, you say that you first found grace, singing the popular Christian praises, Amazing Grace, and Forever Rain. What what do you mean by that? What specifically did you find singing those songs in your mother's Christian church? Yeah, so, um, you know, for those that might not be familiar with the article, um, Overall, it was a kind of a uh, my own exegetical treatment of Moroni 10, uh, 32 and 33, which is uh, at the tail end of the Book of Mormon. Um, and so I, I just wanted to talk about uh, what Moroni's ideas about uh, grace and perfection and sanctification and, and various subjects were according to these uh, uh, common passages uh, that are often uh, both cited by Latter-day Saints, but also uh, various evangelicals, uh, you know, who are, uh, commenting on Mormonism. Um, so I, I began this article by opening up a bit about my own, uh, backstory, uh, being raised, um, in a interfaith family where I had a mom who was an evangelical Christian, uh, though a former Mormon, uh, and my dad who was a, a Mormon, a Latter-day Saint. And so my mom left the LDS church when I was 12. She converted to non-denominational Christianity. And so during my teenage years, uh, during high school and, and whatnot, um, I actively attended both faith communities, um, the, my local uh, Mormon ward and uh, my mother's non-denominational Christian church. And so, you know, I was kind of a, uh, a nerd for religion. I still am, obviously. Um, so I, I enjoyed going to both church services every Sunday and uh, beyond just those churches, I would try to attend other churches when I could, or, you know, I would uh, do Mormon Boy Scouts on Wednesday and, uh, you know, Christians, small group, you know, high school, small groups, Bible study on Tuesdays. I would do uh, scout camp in the summer uh, for the LDS church, and I would do uh, Jesus camp, uh, you know, uh, a, a couple times uh, during the summer as well for my mom's church. So, I kind of got um, full exposure to both worlds. I was actively involved in both, and that was a conscious decision on my part. Um, my parents didn't really force me one way or the other, but um, I, you know, I was just really interested in attending and experiencing both and kind of figuring stuff out for myself. So, uh, like you mentioned, um, I, you know, as I described my experience uh, attending my mom's church. Uh, one thing that I brought up was uh, how my understanding of grace has changed throughout my life. Um, and I would say the first time in my life that grace really, I would say, took hold and became important to me uh, was in attending my mom's church. Uh, not that it was entirely absent 
in my previous experience at the LDS church, but um, just that in terms of, of something that felt personal, felt real, felt meaningful, um, the the first sparks of that, uh, I believe, really, uh, I, I experienced that at my mom's church. So, um, yeah, at, you know, I mentioned uh, in the songs in particular during the worship uh, at my mom's church, um, that was when I first came to sincerely recognize uh, God's grace as an active, uh, sanctifying, redeeming, and empowering force in my life. Um, I mentioned Amazing Grace and Forever Rain. Those were just two examples. Um, they weren't the only songs which produced this effect. Uh, there were others. Uh, but together, they all kind of helped me really center my focus on Jesus, um, on what he did for me and who I needed to be because of him. Um, I, I, it's almost as if I needed the presence of another faith in my life. Uh, to see the contrast between Mormonism and evangelical Christianity, right? Uh, I was able to better come to appreciate the differences between those two traditions uh, by attending both. So um, that experience brought different things into focus for me. Um, it also brought familiar things to focus uh, for me, but through a different lens. Uh, so, you know, for instance, the setting of non-denominational churches uh, tend to be very individualized, I would say, in the sense that altar calls, um, or, you know, like the, the worship services or the moments of the sermon, you know, where the pastor might say, you know, if you're dedicating your life to Jesus, if you, you know, feel called, if you, uh, you know, if you can feel Christ, you know, um, uh, uh, in your heart or, you know, various, various lines like that, um, you know, he might in, invite members of the audience to come up to the front and to join in praise there or, you know, to come join some, you know, of the maybe ushers in prayer or something like that. Um, so those were very powerful moments for me. That was very individualized. And that kind of setting, uh, I think, not just for me, but for others, invoked a very personal response uh, from those in attendance. So, you know, this was a intentionally constructed environment. Um, the pastor's asking, like, striking rhetorical questions to the audience. He's asking them to reflect on the state of their sin, on salvation, their relationship with Christ. And, you know, it was in moments like that where I really felt compelled to give my heart and give my life to Jesus. Um, that was, uh, you know, as far as moments of my life where, uh, you know, someone was asking me, you know, do you accept Christ into your heart? Do you accept him as your savior? Do you give your sins to him? You know, like, do you uh, rely on him for your salvation? Uh, it was in those moments where I first felt, you know, uh, a personal conviction that I can say, yes, yes, I do. Um, so while this kind of awakening, this, uh, you know, so some Christians might might call it, um, you know, being born again, uh, even though that was initiated at my mom's church, um, I didn't feel as though uh, it just like shut off when I was attending my local LDS ward. Um, so even though there was like differences in like the style, the worship and the practice, um, you know, and some significant, uh, doctrinal differences, um, there are still moments comparable such as in partaking of the sacrament where in like quiet reflection, uh, I was able to, you know, also experience these immensely powerful and meaningful moments of, uh, communion. Uh, with Christ as well. So in this setting, the songs were more somber. And rather than reflecting, you know, maybe a more uh, excited or joyous style of praise, 
um, that I experienced often at my mom's church. Uh, the, the hymns in the sacrament, uh, during the sacrament service almost seem to capture, uh, you know, the, the drama or the pathos of like what Christ's suffering in my stead would have felt like, you know, it was just, it, it was a bit more, um, I don't want to say reverent in a disrespectful way, uh, but it was certainly, um, uh, more reserved, uh, more, uh, I, I mentioned somber before, um, so in terms of uh, focusing on how living like Christ and fo- following after him um, went, um, you know, I, I still felt like the music at my dad's church as well, at the Mormon church, um, while singing hymns like, come follow me, come unto Jesus, I know that my Redeemer lives, Jesus wants of humble birth. Um, many of these songs were immensely uh, meaningful to me as well, and they testified to me of uh, uh, the same kind of message uh, about, you know, Jesus's role as my redeem, my personal redeemer and my savior, my, you know, utmost reliance uh, on him based off my belief and my desire to, you know, strive to be like him. Um, and especially of the sacrifice that he, uh, brought on my behalf. So, um, you know, I definitely, I definitely look with gratitude and fondness on my experience at my mom's church uh, because those moments were real to me. They were meaningful to me. Um, and I sincerely do feel like uh, my life was impacted for the better because of my uh, experience there. I felt like I was able to then um, appreciate and experience uh, Christ's atonement uh, or, or grow in my relationship with Christ even more um, uh, while attending LDS service services because I first experienced that. Um, so that, that's kind of what I meant, um, in terms of what I wrote in my article. All right. Uh, can I jump, jump in yeah. with a quick follow up on that? Yeah. You, you mentioned that you, you feel like you first experienced Christ in your, in your mom's Christian church. Um, and you mentioned, you know, some of the altar calls or, or invitations from the pastor to enter into prayer with mm-hmm. the ushers or with the elders. Um, do you, did you ever go forward in, in one of those experiences or was what you experienced more just individual to you within your pew? Yeah, that's a good question. I would say most of the time it was more individual. Um, you know, often I might have felt uncomfortable, um, uh, going forward myself, especially in settings where often those individuals, uh, were then, you know, asked like, you know, will you be baptized or something like that? Um, so, you know, I still had some, some reservations, I would say, uh, because at this point I had already been baptized on the Latter-day Saint. Um, but, uh, there were times in which I did join, uh, you know, the, the worship and the, the fellowship, which was taking place at the front. Um, you know, I didn't always feel compelled, uh, to go up there. Um, but, uh, you know, there were definite moments when I went up there and engaged in, in communal prayer, uh, with the others that were gathered there. I wanted to ask a follow-up question as well because it it kind of sounded like there was some synergy uh, going between the two worship services. Um, you know that maybe you you kind of felt the same feelings in in both places, but you also mentioned that there was a, a contrast that that kind of helped you out as well. Do you feel like it was more beneficial as a as a contrast, or or was it more synergetic in your opinion? Um. Yeah. That, that, that's a good question. Um, at first, I would say uh, the benefit was in the synergism, um, 
because uh, the the continuity, uh, the the commonalities uh, were something that you know early on uh, because it can be confusing, uh, kind of entering into a new religious space, and uh, you know especially if you're going to both services each day. I mean, I was you know beginning the beginning of this process. I was 12 years old, right? So this is when I'm just beginning to uh, have the ability to think for myself, to really consider more the weighty uh, questions of the soul and of eternity. Um, I'm starting to, you know, question my own personal identity. I have parents, right, that are two different faiths. And even though they were very respectful and, you know, they didn't put undue pressure on me either direction, right, um, I, I still, by participating in both these worlds, um, to an extent, almost felt torn one way or the other, right? Uh, the, the question the, was, you know, ultimately, do I, you know, follow after my mom? Do I follow after my dad? Do I do something different, right? So these are the, the, the questions that are going through my mind. So I did, I did appreciate the commonalities to begin with um, and, and the synergy because uh, it, I think it um, made the, the, the whole process a bit easier to experience. Um, as I matured, as I grew in my understanding, as I, uh, grew in my own personal comfort in participating in, uh, different, uh, places of worship than the one that I was raised in, um, the differences started to become more important to me, right? Like once I, once I felt like I had more of a foundation, I, I understood what was going on. Um, I had friends, uh, in both places. Um, you know, then I felt like I was more able to, uh, put my focus on paying attention uh, in closer detail to the the differences uh, between the different the, the two faith traditions and pay closer attention to their their messages and uh, what my experience uh, there was. So um, you know, kind of a kind of a both end question. It just depended on what stage of my life I was in. Right. Well, uh, let me just add something to that. Um, and I think the reason that was is because originally. Um, uh, the, the, the differences, uh, sometimes were a bit shocking or a bit, um, uncomfortable or something like that. Um, but by that, I mean, like at my mom's church, for instance, uh, there would be occasionally maybe, you know, once a, once a semester or once a quarter or something like that, uh, a sermon about Mormonism. Right. And so as someone that, you know, was raised LDS, um, and was now attending uh, another church that uh, was talking about the faith community I was raised in. Um, I didn't have the capacity quite yet to not take things personally, let's say, right? So, you know, for instance, they, the pastor or, or an elder or someone might be uh, giving a sermon and uh, talking about how, you know, respectfully, like in retrospect, I feel like they were you know, completely respectful and I have no issue with it now. Um, but you know, then hearing terms like Mormons worship a different Jesus or, uh, they believe in a gospel of works or, you know, various things like that, like their Jesus cannot save. Um, I think it was easier for me to take that personally because that was like my, my nascent faith. Right. So, um, you know, kind of as I matured, I developed more of a, uh, uh, I, I became less less personally sensitive to that, and I became more understanding that like no offense was intended, um, that this was coming from a sincere place of religious difference. Um, then I, you know, I felt like I was able to 
appreciate those differences more and, and not let uh, potential offense get in the way. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's good. I've actually uh, yet to hear a sermon mentioning Mormonism at all. It must be more of a prevalent <laughs> thing in Utah or something. Yeah, or, or Arizona. Like th- this yeah. was in Gilbert, right? So gotcha. pretty high LDS population there. Yeah, they don't even know what Latter-day Saints are out here in, in Texas. <laughs> it's like, you came from what faith tradition? Uh, no, not, not really, but... <laughs> it's funny. Oh my gosh, I want to jump like into all these tangents and ask you like a million questions, honestly, <laughs> about <laughs> about all that experience. But one thing, you mentioned in your article that you often struggled to really feel the love of God as you instead put greater emphasis on establishing your own righteousness refining the exactness of your own obedience and lamenting over your personal failure to keep God's commandments time and time again. Why do you think that was your experience? And does it give you pause that many ex-Mormons have similar experiences? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so, you know, I, I want to say that I believe that my my faith community, uh, the Latter-day Saints, uh, were and still are uh, you know, majority of the time filled with uh, genuine practitioners who are seeking to love God, love their neighbor, and live like Christ. I, I do believe that, you know, fundamentally, um, most members of the LDS Church are sincere in their devotion, their conviction, and their practice, um, but certainly not perfect, right? Um, and so, you know, even though there's these ideals uh, which I would say are present and taught within the LDS church. I, I think its members regularly fall short of that. Um, and not just in the sense that, you know, we all sin, we're all imperfect. Um, but in the sense that I think, uh, often the faith tradition falls short of its own potential. Um, that, uh, even though there's sincere people seeking to do their best, um, you know, we don't have, uh, Latter-day Saints don't have, uh, trained clergy. Um, they have, uh, lay, uh, local leaders, um, you know, it's largely volunteer positions. You know, we don't have, um, uh, professionalized, uh, seminaries, uh, such as in Protestantism. Uh, and so, you know, in order to be a bishop, in order to be a state president, in order to serve in these various influential positions of leadership, you know, you don't have to have a divinity degree. You don't have to, you know, have a, a theology degree or a degree in apologetics or or pastoral counseling or anything like that, right? Um, so I think, you know, in in that sense, um, uh, often pastors that I witnessed uh, within evangelical Christianity are often better prepared and better equipped to uh, minister to their uh, uh, congregation members of their congregation and to uh, kind of accurately represent their theology. Um, w- within within Mormonism, um, there's official curriculum that's used that's produced out of Salt Lake City uh, at church headquarters, um, and so this this curriculum becomes very uh, influential in uh, determining uh, the widespread beliefs of membership. Right, and this curriculum didn't develop in a in a vacuum. Uh, one is able to go through past publications, through the history of the LDS Church, and and kind of trace uh, the emergence of certain teachings, the the development of different doctrines, the uh, when certain theological beliefs began to be first emphasized, or you know when they kind of uh, uh, became 
uh, out of style or, or sometimes even disavowed, right? So it, it does depend um, at what time in history uh, we are talking about the official views of the LDS Church because those change as its leadership changes and as it, um, you know, maybe new revelations are received or uh, as the uh, general community itself begins to understand their scriptures in a new way, right? So uh, for me, you know, when I was uh, talking about how uh, early on I had some difficulties um, uh, kind of with my own relationship with God, uh, feeling um, feeling confident in my salvation, uh, feeling truly forgiven, um, I think that was because of uh, various forms of rhetoric and even teachings at times, which have become uh, standardized within the LDS tradition, uh, which at times lend themselves to unhealthy interpretations or uh, practices. So, um, you know, this comes in the form of rhetoric at church, uh, such as over the pulpit, in lessons, uh, in the curriculum itself. All of these like really are impacted by LDS church history. And they're influenced by a legacy of former church leaders who kind of set the standard for various interpretations of scripture. So you take that and then you combine it with certain present theological teachings, uh, popular cultural standards and other variables. And these all can come together to produce some unhealthy mindsets, uh, such as perfectionism, um, hyper legalism, uh, scrupulosity, um, all, all of these things where, um, members of the church uh, can develop anxiety or develop depression or develop um, various insecurities about their own standing within the community, about their own standing before God, right? Um, and th- that can take a toll on mental emotional health. Um, not all members deal with this, but I would say uh, it is a, a struggle of the LDS church uh, of its membership at times, uh, you know, it's not, uh, uncommon by any means. So, um, yeah, I, I don't blame, um, either current members for their struggles or former members for their struggles in that respect, because I think it is a real challenge that the faith community faces. Um, and, you know, on the other hand, uh, I do believe, and this has come through my observation of other religious traditions that, a lot of these struggles aren't unique to Mormonism, um, that they can be found in other faith traditions as well to varying degrees. So, for instance, my exposure and uh, participation in non-denominational Christianity, um, I, I was able to observe to an extent uh, some similar some similarities there, um, and not not just among for, uh, current uh, evangelical Christians, but um, these these kinds of uh, either accusations or laments or um, uh, retellings of personal histories, uh, personal experiences by um, kind of the term for them as ex-evangelicals, former evangelical Christians um, who have gone through religious deconstruction from their former Protestant faiths. Um, Often, you know, there's commenting about uh, various forms of perfectionism or scrupulosity uh, emotional health problems caused by their overfixation on their personal sin, their uh, inherent depravity, unworthiness, um, perhaps struggling or engagement in prohibited moral behaviors. So um, 
you know, I, I, I'm not at all trying to draw a false equivalency here. Um, I, I would say that the, the, the teachings of evangelical Christianity um, uh, likely um, lend themselves in ways uh, to um, members of that tradition uh, having um, a more natural or I don't know what, what, what term I would like to use here. Um, basically, you know, there, there's challenges and there are some similarities between the two. There are some unique ways that uh, those challenges manifest themselves within Mormonism. Um, but I don't believe that the problems are inherent to Mormonism. Um, and it, they're certainly not just shared by evangelical Christianity either. Um, often this is just uh, problems faced by high demand religions. Um, uh, you know, certainly uh, various forms of Judaism, uh, you know, also struggle with this. So I think it does depend on the tradition. I think it depends on how members of that tradition understand their teachings, how they live their teachings. Um, so, you know, that, that's kind of how I've come to understand my experience there. Um, but that was one that I was eventually able to overcome, um, you know, th- those feelings of not being loved by God or not being fully forgiven or not being good enough or things like that. Um, I, I was able to uh, grow out of those as I studied more, as I, you know, kind of questioned the predominant um, either assumptions or cultural teachings or things like that. Um, and, and I'm in a much more confident and comfortable place now. Also, I want to say, don't feel free to cut me off. You know, we <laughs> want to jump on something. I don't want to rant too much. I can, I can talk a lot. No, it, you're good. It, it works I, I just, for me. Yeah. Yeah. I just have a kind of a quick follow up on, on your response to that last question. Yeah. Um, would you say that, do you think it's possible for a Latter-day Saint to, and I think you, I think your answer is probably going to be yes, because I think for you personally, you feel like you've reached that point, but do you think that the, the, overall the teachings of the LDS church lead to members being able to have blessed assurance. Uh, could you define what you mean by that? Yeah. Like confidence that they are saved ultimately will live with yeah. God in the end. Yeah. Um, I, I, I believe so. And I especially see that coming more um, naturally to younger members of the church. And I think it's because uh, internally there's been shifts in our rhetoric in our approach to various scriptural passages uh, over the course of uh, the last several decades, uh, where it seems the trajectory that we're on right now is to really begin, uh, you know, calling out uh, unhealthy mindsets such as perfectionism, such as uh, hyper-legalism or, you know, various things like that, where uh, religion becomes a, a checklist, right? And, and especially sometimes in, in Mormonism, uh, various members see it as an unending checklist, right? There's always something to be doing. There's always something you could be doing better, right? And this can cause them to think less of themselves um, and to, you know, worry even uh, that uh, they might be outside of saving if, you know, these challenges have to do with certain sins. So, um, yeah, I, I, I do believe um, that uh, these mindsets are possible within Mormon frameworks and within the boundaries of orthodoxy of the, the LDS church. Um, but I, I think uh, they can be very much influenced or made, you know, more difficult to obtain through various manifestations of uh, cultural expectations or rhetoric or things like that. 
Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think rhetoric like that was especially prominent, uh, throughout the middle, uh, 20th century. So I, I have seen some older, uh, Latter-day Saints struggle in particular, um, at times with, with that kind of confidence. Well, we just lost Matthew. I think he got attacked by squirrels. Oh, there he is. <laughs> sorry about that. I don't know. My, my, my uh, software has had issues. It's like, it'll just randomly cut out. So sorry. Yeah. There's, he, he has squirrel issues. There's squirrels that live in his attic and chew on wires and sometimes oh, they come I've, out I've, and attack I've him. I've seen him. I've seen him. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I was going to tell you too, Jackson, like if you need more, uh, information out of us or you want to shoot questions back, you're welcome to do that too. <clears throat> I yeah. kind of have the, the opposite issue as you, like I never like want to say anything. So it's like <laughs> pulling teeth, getting more <laughs> information out of me or, uh, <clears throat> well, but I will, I will be sure to target you, especially, uh, during this conversation then. Yeah, sounds good. I was kind of I was kind of expecting that anyway. So <laughs> no, uh, it's like how how could you be so dumb, Michael? No. Uh, so did you guys have any other questions about anything that he said so far, or can I? I don't. What about you, Matthew? Well, I don't know. I thought this this it's all really interesting to hear your background and to to read the article and knowing that we're from a Latter Day Saint background, you know. So we yeah. all have we all have kind of similar experiences so mm-hmm. you know we wanted it to kind of be comfortable so we could all share and not, and not feel yeah. like you know we're trying to you know force you into a corner or anything so but i think I, I think we can see over the past 10 years or even further that we see that the lds church and the leaders are trying to address the idea kind of the elephant in the room of dealing with you know feelings of inadequacy uh feelings of not being able to live up to this high standard and I think that's happened for decades. I mean, I, one of my one of my favorite books that I love to read was Spencer W. Kimball's Miracle Forgiveness, even though a lot of people, you know, they don't like it, you know, for a lot mm-hmm. of reasons. But but I think what he was trying to do is show us here's this high holy standard that God expects us to live. Mm-hmm. But for a lot of times, it brought people down. So do you think do you think the conversation has changed a little bit recently in terms of addressing these issues? That's kind of a yeah. big topic. Yeah, absolutely. And not just these question uh, issues, but just issues, I think, of mental, emotional health in general. I think there's been some massive internal cultural shifts about our willingness to talk openly about uh, difficult subjects. So another thing, uh, for instance, that impressed me when I was attending my mom's church uh, was in my small groups and whatnot. Um, you know, for instance, one thing that was pretty common uh, in these Bible study groups among youth uh, was for people to get together and talk pretty openly about their struggles, about their sins, about, you know, what they were having some real challenges with, right? And the, the culture that I experienced at the LDS church, on the other hand, uh, kind of prohibited or, you know, looked down on the public, uh, expression of your own sincere struggles or, or challenges. I think, you know, we're moving away for that, from that for sure. Um, but you know, in my childhood, my upbringing, um, and certainly decades beyond that, right. Uh, if you were to get up and talk about, uh, for an example, uh, that you, uh, were struggling, uh, with a compulsive, uh, use of pornography or you, um, maybe engaged in self-harm or, you know, any kind of like personal mental, emotional illness or, uh, addiction or, uh, challenge with sin or, or questions of morality. Right. Uh, it was like, Whoa, you know, you're going to drive the spirit out if you talk about that or, 
you know, we don't want to tempt other people to sin or, you know, I don't really know what the rationale uh, was there. I just know that uh, it it wasn't the most common thing to do. And because of that, a stigma, right, was placed around sin um, where we, you know, I, I do believe that everyone recognized that we're imperfect and that we are sinful, right? But the willingness to actually talk about that, um, I didn't really find growing up. Um, although I did start to experience that changing, uh, later on in high school, uh, in LDS, uh, circles. But, um, at my mom's church at a young age, uh, like I mentioned, uh, youth and, and youth leaders and whatnot, members of the congregation, uh, would actively ask, Hey guys, you know, I've been struggling looking at pornography this week. Will you pray for me? You know, or, you know, can I have you as an accountability partner or can I, um, you know, just various things like that. That was powerful. That was, um, that kind of vulnerability. I really, um, the term that I use a lot when I observe different religions and, uh, really appreciate and, and benefit from what they have to offer, uh, is one coined by Christer Stendhal, who was a, a Lutheran, uh, bishop. He's, he's popular amongst Latter-day Saints, but, he has these three rules of religious understanding. And the third one is he calls it holy envy, uh, where, you know, you can look with appreciation uh, to other faith traditions and say, wow, like, I really respect that. I really look up to that. And that was something that I looked up to as well with my mom's church is uh, that kind of vulnerability. I didn't begin to see that kind of vulnerability brought in until later in high school in LDS circles. And, and now I believe that uh, the community is really starting to embrace it more. Um, there's prominent writers and uh, Latter-day Saint thinkers who are publishing about the need for vulnerability, about the need to address mental emotional health. Um, we're starting to see that more at General Conference. For instance, uh, one thing that was significant recently, uh, it wasn't at this last General Conference, but uh, one of the ones right before that, um, one of the uh, uh, sisters in the Relief Society General Pre- Presidency uh, talked about her dad, uh, uh, dying by suicide. Um, you know, and to talk about suicide, right, over the pulpit, yeah, that's a huge deal to bring issues like depression and eating disorders and all these things to the forefront and be comfortable talking about them in church settings. I, I'm seeing that a lot more now, uh, within the LDS church. I think those are positive improvements. I think it's helping members, uh, deal with those problems more and, you know, kind of break down stigma attached to them. So, you know, I'm, I'm pleased to see those changes, but I, I would agree with you uh, that I think uh, the there's been major shifts in rhetoric in uh, kind of things that are determined, seen as acceptable amongst members. Um, I think they're positive changes. Yeah, I, I agree with you um, that there's definitely a, a shift taking place. And, and you know, I, I've I had some experiences growing up as a young Latter-day Saint that I've talked about in other episodes that kind of led me to for for a while when I was a, an adult as a Latter-day Saint to really, really feel like I was going to church with a mask on, yeah, um, yeah. you know, hiding things that I was struggling with, you know, as you talked about. And when I came out of the LDS church and, and started attending a Christian church, um, you know, going to men's group, uh, men's Bible study on Wednesday nights and, and hearing other men, as you, as you described, uh, was your experience as well. Uh, talk about things they were struggling with and, and ask somebody to be an account- accountability partner for them. Um, it was a it was like a breath of fresh air for me to see yeah, that kind of yeah. authenticity in someone's yeah, faith, totally. you know, and vulnerability. And so um, I, 
you know, I'm happy to hear you say that, that you're seeing that change some in the LDS church, but it, it definitely was not my experience growing up there. So, yeah. And I totally validate that, you know, and even though it was only, you know, it's becoming more of that for part of my life. Um, it's certainly, uh, uh, you know, your experience was likely very similar to my mom's as well. And, and to other people that I know. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, and I even remember when I was in the MTC getting ready to go on my mission, I, I served in Hungary from 1997 to 99. And um, I remember working through what the, at the time was the missionary guide. Uh, now they use, I think now they use what preach my gospel, I think is what it's called. Um, you know, you're, you're working through that and, uh, you know, you're teaching a lesson on, you know, that, that we all fall short of the glory of God. Right. And there was yeah. a very explicit warning in there. Do not share your personal sins with investigators. Right. right? right. Yeah. So it was, it was like a warning not to be authentic, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I can understand to an extent like uh, um, uh, using discernment about the time and place. Right. When it comes to uh, disclosing personal matters or, you know, perhaps talking about them in, a, in an appropriate way. But I certainly disagree uh, with uh, blanket prohibitions that, you know, it there is no appropriate time uh, to talk about these things with uh, with people other than maybe your parents or priesthood leaders or something like that. Um, you know, I, I definitely believe that there's power in, in brotherhood and fraternity and, uh, discipling fellowship. Right. Um, so yeah, uh, I, I do believe though that in preach my gospel that, uh, uh, that, that stuff is still there. Um, and if not in preach my gospel, then it's definitely in the white handbook. So yeah, I was, I was thinking back because I was a preach my gospel missionary and I was trying to think back if that's in there, but you might be right. It's been updated a couple times since then, too. So um, maybe it's worded differently. I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't have mine anymore to, to check. I think it got lost in the last move. Huh. Um, okay, so Jackson, you mentioned in your article that you desired to know whether the gospel you had come to love and swim deeply in while attending your mother's evangelical church could be found in your father's Mormonism. You stated that you came to view Second Nephi in the Book of Mormon as akin to Romans in the Bible. Can you comment further on that? What specifically in Second Nephi leads you to believe that that analogy holds? Yeah. Um, so, you know, first, I, I, I guess I want to say that, you know, by describing Second Nephi as the Romans of the Book of Mormon, uh, by that, I mean that uh, for me, it, it might be the most the, the the most powerful book of scripture within the Book of Mormon um, uh, on the subject of grace. For me, the most clearly expounded. Um, so I, I found references to to grace and to um, the 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 merits of Christ, His atonement, His saving power, uh, to be very um, persuasive and uh, at least as far as reading goes. Uh, akin to the experience that I would have when reading Romans. Um, so that's why I kind of linked the two there. Um, so, you know, granted, there are, um, uh, let me pull up my notes here. Um, okay, so, so some other reasons why I described uh, Second Nephi that way, um, even though there's kind of a, a plethora of examples or similarities, I would say thematically, uh, the most uh, major commonalities between uh, Second Nephi and Romans uh, would be uh, the relationship of the law uh, with respect to salvation in Christ. So in this case, the law of Moses, um, the nature of grace, uh, questions of race and ethnic background with respect to salvation, 
um, and uh, discussion about the the tribes of Israel. Um, so there's also some differences as well between uh, the Book of Mormon and Romans, uh, not just Romans, but also like Pauline uh, thought. Um, the, the Book of Mormon doesn't really use uh, the uh, Pauline, uh, specific Pauline terms like justification by faith or justification by grace. Um, uh, it it kind of has its own terminology that it uses. Um, but I, I do believe that the, the, the concepts are uh, comparable um, and compatible. Um, so, yeah, for me, Second uh, Nephi was the most direct and explicit exposition on the nature of grace in the text of the Book of Mormon. Um, there's various passages I could uh, turn to. Um, let me see. Uh, let me just pull up the foremost one that comes to mind. This has been my favorite for a while. Uh, this is in Second Nephi, uh, chapter two, uh, verses five through eight. Just pull it up, like it. If Michael's pulling out his Book of Mormon, nice. Sorry, where did you say this was? Second Nephi. So Second Nephi two, uh, verses five through eight, and uh, this is what it reads. It says, um, "And men are instructed sufficiently that they know good from evil, and the law is given unto men." Uh, and by the law, no flesh is justified, or by the law, men are cut off. Yea, by the temporal law, they were cut off. And also by the spiritual law, they perish from that which is good and become miserable forever. Wherefore, redemption cometh in and through the holy Messiah, for he is full of grace and truth. Behold, he offereth himself a sacrifice for sin to answer the ends of the law unto all those who have a broken heart and a contrite spirit. And unto none else can the ends of the law be answered. Wherefore, how great the importance to make these things known unto the inhabitants of the earth, that they may know that there is no flesh that can dwell in the presence of God, save it be through the merits and mercy and grace of the Holy Messiah, who layeth down his life according to the flesh, and taketh it again by the power of the Spirit, that he may bring to pass the resurrection of the dead, being the first that would rise. Um, for me, the, this passage uh, has um, was significant, uh, among others. Uh, and talking about how the law relates to our sin, how the law relates to salvation. Um, and, and so for me, when I read this, I read that, uh, you know, the law is given unto men. We know good and evil from the law, uh, but ultimately we're cut off by the law. No flesh is justified by the law. No one is found righteous because of the law. Um, redemption, however, comes through the Holy Messiah. Um, and there's no flesh that can dwell in the presence of God, save it be through the merits and mercy and grace of the Holy Messiah. So um, this is one of uh, multiple passages in Second Nephi especially, which uh, depicts our need to rely on the merits and mercy and grace of Christ um, that uh, differentiates uh, between what we can accomplish and what Christ accomplishes on our behalf through his sacrifice. Uh, when I read the Book of Mormon, I find a pretty consistent message uh, that, uh, you know, of our own, uh, we cannot earn our salvation. We cannot uh, be justified by our works. We cannot follow the law so perfectly uh, that uh, we can save ourselves. Rather, you know, we need to accept the free grace, the free gift, of grace uh, by from Jesus Christ, uh, which is what leads to salvation. Um, so uh, yeah, there, there's uh, quite a few other uh, passages as well, um, but uh, th that's the primary one that comes to mind. I don't know if 
uh, any of you want to maybe comment on that or or anything else, I'm happy to take it in different directions. So one of the things that just jumps out to me, because I just opened up my Book of Mormon here, and I've got a lot of this verse highlighted. Um, for instance, in, uh, in verse 4, it ends by saying salvation is free. Mm-hmm. And in, uh, in verse 3, it says, Wherefore I know that thou art redeemed because of the righteousness of thy Redeemer. Mm-hmm. And, and all of this is very closely what I believe as an evangelical Christian, that I am righteous because of the righteousness of Christ, that it is imputed to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess, you know, reading, reading these passages, what really comes to mind that I want to, what I want to throw out there to you is, you know, what, what do you think the difference is between Protestant, the Protestant view of grace and what is being said in the Book of Mormon? Or is there a difference? Yeah. Um, so, uh, yes and no. Uh, <laughs> so I, I do believe that, uh, you know, upon, uh, kind of a, uh, an honest or, uh, a, um, a, a fair reading or, or an open reading, let's say, uh, that many Christians will find the language used in the Book of Mormon to be very similar, very compatible, uh, very, uh, comparable to things that they might themselves espouse and believe. Um, so, you know, often I do, uh, uh, know various, uh, Christians who might take certain passages in the Book of Mormon and say, you know, this is, this is against what I believe. This is, uh, contrary to what I believe. Uh, common passages, uh, that I've seen commented on, uh, include 2 Nephi chapter 25, verse 23, uh, which is, uh, by grace ye are saved after all ye can do. Uh, that's very common. Uh, to hear cited. Another one is the one that I expounded on in my blog post, um, Moroni 10, 32. Um, there's some other ones as well. Um, so I, I do, I, I do often find that my interpretation of these verses, uh, in light, uh, or when compared to, uh, how they're interpreted by many evangelicals, uh, can differ. And then, you know, uh, they might feel like there's these huge differences. Uh, between the Book of Mormon's gospel and the gospel that they derive from the New Testament. Um, you know, I often disagree, uh, with how they interpret those verses. Although, you know, no disrespect to evangelicals because there's plenty of Latter-day Saints who interpret those verses in very similar ways. Uh, and I disagree with them as well. Um, but, uh, I guess in a, in a broad sense, um, Protestantism is very much influenced by both, uh, Augustine and uh calvin uh john calvin um granted you know so backing up just a bit uh often protestant uh thought is divided between calvinism and arminianism um and you know i'm i'm assuming the listeners you know might know some of the differences between the two um uh but in terms of what the book of mormon presents and how it differs from uh, Augustinian thought or, and or Calvinist thought, um, I, I would say uh, the main differences are this. Uh, the Book of Mormon uh, sees um, the state of humanity before the fall uh, as being unable to choose either good or evil. Okay, so they're innocent. Um, whereas um, uh, Augustinian or Calvinist thought views uh, the state before the fall as humans were able to choose both good and evil. Uh, this is prior to original sin. 
Um, and uh, so that had not yet uh, taken place. So after the fall, but before regeneration, before um, the uh, justification, the, the presence of, of saving grace uh, in an individual, um, the Book of Mormon uh, depicts that uh, the atonement automatically delivers all person from captivity uh, to evil. Uh, what I mean by that is the Book of Mormon depicts uh, a, a concept of accountability where individuals, um, there are certain states in which uh, one doesn't actually commit sin um, because, you know, that sin, uh, it requires knowledge and understanding of right and wrong are depicted as being uh, necessary uh, for sin to have occurred. Sin is depicted as an act rather than a state of being. Um, and uh, whereas in Augustinian or Calvinist thought, um, human nature um, is seen as inherently unable to not sin. Um, th- this is one of the effects of original sin, um, where you know humans do possess free will, uh, but humans are only able to freely choose sin. Um, another difference. I, I did see your hand there, Paul. Uh, I'm just going to get through two more of these. Um, so after the fall and after regeneration, the Book of Mormon depicts that all persons are able to choose good and evil, um, whereas Augustinian or Calvinist thought uh, views people who are uh, regenerated as uh, delivered from evil nature uh, by God's prevenient grace. Um, and so after free choice, um, uh the Book of Mormon depicts that those who choose evil return to their naturally evil status. And those who choose good receive eternal life. So uh, essentially that, you know, we continue to have the capacity to choose good or evil, uh, whereas Augustinian or Calvinist thought uh, views um, uh, humans as still uh, inherently sinful, uh, but redeemed uh, by grace. Um, those who are not regenerated, those who are not redeemed, uh, are damned um, based off God's uh, predestination and foreordination. So um, those are just some differences uh, between the Book of Mormon and uh, major wings of Protestant thought. Um, it, it will vary, you know, if we were talking Arminian, uh, Arminianism, because I, I would say the Book of Mormon tends to be a rather uh, hyper-Arminian text, uh, same with Mormonism, that places a, a very strong emphasis on uh, synergism rather than mo- monergism. Uh, the idea that, uh, salvation occurs, uh, through the, uh, cooperation or, uh, the joint, uh, action of both God's grace, God's, uh, uh, saving grace, uh, with, uh, the active acceptance on the part of the human and, uh, their, uh, choosing to, you know, believe and follow after god uh by following the commandments um whereas monergism would be that salvation is contingent on god alone that humans of themselves cannot be saved that they cannot choose salvation for themselves um and that they are uh fully reliant upon god for their salvation um so i i i you know that was a lot again i hope i didn't misrepresent anything if you know you disagree or if there's anything that you want to clarify or anything like that, you know, feel, feel free to push back on, um, that's just, 
my reading of the Book of Mormon, those are some differences uh, that I've observed. Yeah, I'll, I'll leave it to the nuclear Calvinists to push back on anything related to Calvinism. But uh, <laughs> I do have a couple of things I wanted to ask ask you about based on what you said. So yeah. you mentioned, you know, that the, the Book of Mormon kind of presents Adam and Eve as as innocent pre-fall. Right. And and I think three of us are fairly well versed in um you know, Mormon teachings on, you know, the difference between sin and transgression. Um, but what I wanted to ask about that is from where, because you also touched on, you know, a little bit on, uh, or you alluded to kind of the idea that, you know, before the age of accountability, um, people, or even before someone re- receives knowledge of the, of the law, right. That, that they're not accountable for sin. Mm-hmm. And so, my question, I guess, would be from where does knowledge of sin come? Um, like in a general sense or uh, I, I, I would say that uh, the, the understanding within Mormon thought is that uh, following the fall, um, that uh, God has across history uh, imparted uh, his his truth or his commandments uh, in various forms. Um, now, uh, these are, uh, I, I would say, found uh, most, um, completely, uh, within the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, but certainly Mormons still believe that, uh, God has inspired, uh, other individuals, whether they're religious or not, to have a certain understanding of morality, to have certain understandings of right and wrong. Um, this is often, uh, seen as coming through the, the light of Christ. Um, so, you know, inherently, um, you know, humans would know that uh, um, murder is wrong or stealing or things like that. There's there's various common moral uh, standards uh, which are pretty consistently held throughout cultures throughout history. Um, so um, yeah, I I, I think uh, you know Mormonism. You know, if we're not assuming that the commandments are explicitly taught to an individual, um, that you know that's how an individual receives their knowledge. Uh, that there is an inherent level of understanding through which we all possess um, about, uh, you know, basic standards of, of right and wrong. Um, so would you say, that. yeah, it does help. Yeah. Um, would you say then that like the, the explicit teachings would come through scripture, through prophets, et cetera? Yeah, I, 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 I think so. Um, if okay. we're going to talk about more particular matters, um, yeah, I, I think so. Okay. Um I guess the question I would have then is if, if Adam and Eve are in an innocent state pre-fall and, and God gives them a direct command not to eat of the fruit, that doesn't that seem like that would put them in a state of having knowledge of what not to do? Yeah. Um, so, you know, that, that certainly wasn't the only commandment that they were given. Uh, often in LDS thought, it um, depicted uh, the, the situation uh, prior to the fall depicted as, uh, you know, they were given two commandments uh, to um, multiply and replenish the earth or to not partake of the fruit. Um, following one would mean breaking the other. Um, and so uh, by choosing the one, uh, you know, which would bring them direct uh, knowledge of good and evil, um, that's when that uh, accountability came. Um let me just pull up my notes here because I did, uh, did address this. But uh, yes, um, sorry, just a second. Ah, yes. Um, okay. Could you could you repeat the question one more time just so I make sure I'm a- answering it correctly? 
Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm kind of pressing on, and, and again, I'm not trying to corner you or anything. I just, uh, I enjoy thinking about these things and thinking through mm-hmm. these things. Like when I was on my mission, I used to think through this a lot, um, uh, with regard to Lehi's, you know, mm-hmm. kind of sermon he gives to his sons that, um, that touches on this, but you know, if, if, if knowledge of sin comes through direct commandment from God, right? Like this, this is something you should do. This is something you should not do. Um, and Adam and Eve are in the garden and God gives them commandments. Um, doesn't that put them in a state where they're no longer innocent, right? They, they, they have the direct command from God, how to act and Mm -hmm. they willfully disobey one of the commands. And, Mm -hmm. And kind of the way I see it, I guess, is like, the biblical text doesn't, um, as the Book of Mormon does, uh, present it that they they could not keep one or the other, right? Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on on the idea that that direct command from God kind of puts them in a state where they're they're no longer acting in innocence because they have mm-hmm. a direct command from God. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, I, yeah. I, I think uh, I, I see more what you're saying now, um, and I think. I, I think you hit on an important part because uh, because this command from God was given, uh, they are now accountable to follow it or not, right? Um, and, and so, you know, even though the it, it's often referred to as as Adam's transgression that this was before this was before sin entered the world technically, um, before they uh, were um, uh, removed from the from the garden and from the immediate presence of God. Um, that, uh, prior, to, prior to this, prior to this decision, uh, you know, they just didn't really have the means to, to sin or to act righteously because, um, you know, they, they had not yet received commandments or followed commandments. Right. So mm-hmm. I, I do believe that, uh, by receiving commandments, uh, it put them in a, in a predicament one way or the other, uh, because either action broke the, the other commandment. Uh, and, you know, frankly, inaction, I believe, would have uh, would have uh, broken those commandments as well. Right. Uh, I don't believe that there was a uh, a cop out uh, choice there either. Um, I'll definitely have to give more thought uh, to it specifically um, and, and how your question relates to common LDS understandings of transgression versus uh, versus uh, sin. Um, but, uh, yeah, I actually think, uh, I had a companion once that, that asked that same question. I think we had to get out, out the door, uh, right after, shortly after he, he, uh, asked it. So it wasn't able to rack my brain as much as, uh, <laughs> yeah, well, maybe, maybe we can take it up, uh, later on. But, um, the other, the other question I wanted to ask you with regards to what you said about second Nephi 25, 23, um, you know, and you did allude, you did mention that, that. There are LDS people who have interpreted it in in the same way that evangelicals tend to interpret it, right? That you have to do everything that you can do, and then grace kicks in, right? And and makes up the difference, right? Well, I guess my question is that you know that it's not just LDS people. That there have been LDS leaders who have interpreted it in that way and and preached it in that way. And so, kind of a question there, like if, if there's a in in evangelical Christianity, if there's a preacher who is preaching a word and and a Christian can go to the Bible and say, hey, you know, this is what you're preaching isn't lining up with the word of God. It's not lining up with with, um, you know, scholarly understandings of, of the original languages. Um, you know, within, within Mormonism, you kind of have this authority structure, right, where you that's one of the big truth claims for for uh, Mormonism is is you have 
prophets and apostles, right? Called by God to lead the church. And so if you have a prophet or apostle teaching an interpretation of a passage in the Book of Mormon, you know, what recourse do you have? You, you can't go to original languages um, to argue that that Nephi meant something else, right? Mm-hmm. What, are, what are your yeah. thoughts on that? Yeah, so with respect to this verse, uh, I absolutely agree with you uh, that this has had various interpretations across LDS history. Most recently and commonly, I would say, for the past century or so, uh, has been an understanding of after all we can do as meaning, um, you know, once we have done everything we can, then grace comes and kicks in and, you know, carries the rest or something like that, right? Um, and I also agree that uh, often it's been very, very common to defer uh, to these ecclesiastical interpretations given uh, by uh, the various prophets and apostles who have commented and interpreted on these verses. Um, personally, um, you know, I, I do believe that, uh, you know, though I do look to the leaders of the church as spiritual teachers and um, prophets, seers, and re- revelators, um, I certainly don't believe uh, that they have the market cornered when it comes to scriptural interpretation. Um, you know, I, I believe that they have the authority to define what official doctrine is for the church. Um, you know, that's one thing. But, you know, um, there's a, a recent statement by, by one of them, uh, Elder Ballard, uh, where he says, you know, just because I'm a general authority does not mean I'm an authority in general. Um, uh, there's... Uh, you know, an, an, even though uh, Latter-day Saints tend to place great stock um, in the teachings and interpretations of the leaders, um, I, I do believe that there's a legitimate role for scholarship. Um, and in the case of the Book of Mormon, um, you rightly commented that, you know, we can't re- uh, go back to the original language. Um, but in this case, uh, I think uh, recent scholarship has been able to go back to the vernacular of the 19th century uh, to help exegete this text in particular. So there's two main reasons why I disagree with both Latter-day Saint and evangelical readings of this passage, which views grace as uh, only kicking in after all that one can can do in terms of their own religious works. Um, The first reason is narrative-based. The context of 2 Nephi is with respect to the Law of Moses. So in 2 Nephi 25, um, it's, uh, the, the chapter is uh, majorly uh, focusing on the relation of the law of Moses to uh, looking forward in anticipation with a coming Messiah uh, who will save. Um, so in the Book of Mormon, uh, this would have taken place, um, you know, let's say around, uh, um, oh, I don't know, I want to say like 530 AD or something like that, you know, uh, a handful of centuries before the coming of Christ. Um, and so uh, the narrative at least presents uh, the people as, uh, um, you know, essentially being Messianic Jews, practicing the law of Moses, but in anticipation of Christ who will come. Second Nephi 25 uh, talks about how the law is ultimately a symbol or a teacher, uh, which points uh, these individuals to Christ um, and their ultimate reliance and need for him. Um so narrative, narratively, um, I, I don't believe that uh, it fits to interpret the verse as meaning that only after w- all one can do in a law sense, then grace kicks in. Uh, that contradicts uh, many other passages of the Book of Mormon, uh, such as uh, um, the 
the one in second Nephi I previously shared as well as others, um, that depicts, uh, grace, uh, as being a free gift, as salvation being a free gift, which is contingent on belief. The, you know, that the presence of such grace, uh, which is what then transformed the individual to produce good works. Um, that the, the way that, um, one's fruits are demonstrated are through keeping the commandments of God. Um, and that ultimately good fruits, good works are, um, a, uh, an expression of grace in the life of the believer. Um, so that's the first part. The second part has to do with the specific wording. Uh, recent scholarship by LDS scholar Daniel McClellan, uh, who is actually um, one of the head translators uh, who works for the church. Uh, he just got his PhD um, uh, in, ooh, I want to say Hebrew Bible, I'm not sure. Um, but uh, yeah, he did just uh, successfully defend his dissertation, which was on the Hebrew Bible. Um, uh, basically, he, he had a paper uh, that's actually going to be recently published in uh, EYU studies, um, and he's done various speaking things where he has meticulously gone to various, uh, examples of literature in the 19th century looking for the specific phrase after all we can do or after all X can do. Okay. In all of these instances, all of these cases, this phrase means essentially despite all that one can do. It never depicts a chronological moment in time where, uh, you know, there's one thing and then after that, another thing happens. Um, this phrase, uh, at least within the context of the 19th century, uh, which is uh, the context in which Joseph Smith dictated the extant text of the Book of Mormon, um, meant and was un- understood by early believers of the, of the LDS Church as meaning, uh, you know, we are saved by grace despite all we can do um, or in spite of all we can do. Like essentially nothing we can do ultimately is what saves us. We are saved by grace, regardless of what we do. Um, you know, it, it was a synonymous term. And so he breaks down the linguistic history of this passage, uh, how it was interpreted by early members, how it fit into the larger context of uh, the literature at the time. There's dozens, dozens of examples um, uh, that he draws from that consistently uh, reinforce this idea that after all we can do, at least uh, as it would have been understood by readers in the 19th century meant in spite of all we can do. Um, now his research is just beginning to take more prominence within the LDS community. Um, but, uh, you know, to your point, I do believe that, uh, there are various forms of scholarship, which can be helpful. Um, and there's moments in LDS church history where the work of historians, scholars, and other experts, uh, have been able to influence the way ways in which uh, the leaders of the church themselves interpret and approach various passages. So, um, you know, that that's basically how I view that passage, uh, both in the lens of the Book of Mormon and what's going on in the narrative, but also through the vernacular of the 19th century. Daniel McClellan also traces how eventually, uh, you know, we, we all know that languages change, uh, right? The, the language of the King James Bible, for instance, is not the same English that we speak today. Um, it wasn't even the same English that people in Joseph Smith's day spoke. Um, and so the meanings of words can shift. The meanings of certain phrases can shift. Certain things can fall out of uh, popularity. And this is one which, uh, um, you know, essentially after the saints arrived in Utah, around the turn of the 20th century especially, um, this passage started to be understood as meaning, you know, we are saved by grace 
after all we can do works wise. Um, and so for those various reasons, I find that to be a faulty interpretation. Uh, but I do want to recognize that it is one that has been taught over the pulpit and in published writings of the church by leaders of the church, you know, the prophets and apostles. And because of that, it's been a very popular interpretation among the members. Yeah, I mean, I actually ended up coming up to very similar conclusions as as what you're saying, Jackson, uh, when I was kind of going through my, my faith crisis, or I guess right beforehand, where I realized, you know, Moroni 10, 32, especially when it's paired with verse 33 right afterwards, mm-hmm. it does seem to, to promote uh, the concept of grace a lot more than you know, legalism or, or perfection. And I feel the same way about, you know, second Nephi twenty five twenty three. also, I mean, you just look at the, uh, the context, the, what the rest of this verse is saying, it says, uh, for we live, we labor diligently to write, to persuade our children and also our brethren to believe in Christ and to be reconciled to God that, that flows a hundred percent with, with what I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that phrase just by itself, you, you take out, you know, after the comma, after all we can do, it just says, by grace, we are saved. And that's not yeah. something that I disagree with at all. Yeah. So it does it does feel very contradictory to suddenly throw that phrase in and say, after all we can do. It just yeah. nullifies everything that was said before that. But I think where I kind of struggled with this verse is because, you know, like, like Paul was kind of saying, there's an authority structure. And I was I was kind of sidetracked looking at that you know like the bible dictionary for instance if you look under the heading grace it actually references this verse i'm sure you're familiar with it but it basically says that grace you know cannot suffice until we've expended our best efforts Mm -hmm. thus we are saved by grace after all we can do which yes luckily (laughs) you know the way i kind of justified that is i'm like well it's the bible dictionary it's not quite scripture but i'm like I'm like they still put this in here as part of the yeah. canon, though. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For for me, um, you know, I look at the Bible dictionary, for instance, and the the major author, the major person responsible for the Bible dictionary was Bruce R. McConkie. Uh, he was one of the pivotal, most foremost, uh, you know, influencers, uh, church leaders in the 20th century that continues to have an impact and influence today. Although I'd I'd argue that the church is now beginning to move into a different uh, kind of space of rhetoric and theological interpretation than was uh, strictly espoused by McConkie. But he was a, he, you know, he was a very important phys- figure. And from essentially the, you know, let's say the the, the 50s to uh, the early 2000s, even the late 2000s, even um, his, his influence was very heavy within the faith, right? Uh, for me, it has been through studying the history studying the ways that various leaders have interpreted interpretation um, or, or influenced interpretation uh, that I've been able to understand, you know, exactly how representative is this within the larger scope of Mormon thought for one, how necessary is this interpretation uh, and uh, you know, how, how strictly rooted in, in scripture is this? Um, but, you know, I certainly do not blame anyone who raised in the church you know, put great stock in the teachings of Bruce R. McConkie and, you know, others who uh, uh, shared, you know, his, his similar views um, or, you know, especially held like the view, the, the book uh, Mormon Doctrine uh, in high esteem, because again, the influence Bruce R. McConkie had 
on the church in the 20th century cannot be uh, overstated, in my opinion. Um, I do want to go back to um, verse 23, though, uh, because, um, like I said, Mormons uh, and by implication, evangelicals who are kind of following after more prominent Mormon interpretations, um, you know, uh, Mormons are the worst at proof texting. I mean, Christians do it, too. But, you know, it, it irks me when when my own people do it. Uh, but anyways, you know, I'm just like context, please, like exegete. Right. Um, but so like I'll, I'll read from verse 33, 23 and then a little bit onward uh, for we'd labor diligently to write to persuade our children and our, also our, our brethren to believe in Christ and to be reconciled to God. For we know that it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. And notwithstanding, we believe in Christ. We keep the law of Moses and look forward with steadfastness unto Christ until the law shall be fulfilled. For for this end was the law given, wherefore the law hath become dead unto us. We are made alive in Christ because of our faith, yet we keep the law because of the commandments. And we talk of Christ, we we rejoice in Christ, we preach of Christ, we prophesy of Christ, we write according to our prophecies, that our children may know to what source they may look for a remission of their sins. Um, Wherefore we speak concerning the law, that our children may know the deadness of the law, and they, by knowing the deadness of the law, may look forward unto the life which is in Christ, and know for what end the law was given. And after the law is fulfilled in Christ, that they need not harden their hearts against him when the law ought to be done away, right? So it's stuff like this, right? When you put it in context, I believe that those verses soften significantly uh, any potentially, you know, super legalist interpretation of that passage. Um, and so it does irk me when I feel like not only is the the has, has the popular interpretation of that passage by Latter Day Saints been uh, kind of a very unfortunate proof texting, uh, but it has uh, kind of been brought in line with uh, other uh, theological views, which, in my opinion, uh, can lead to unhealthy uh, mindsets and uh, r- religious paradigms. So one of the things that the kind of I, I was just thinking about, you know that. That different way of interpreting Second Nephi twenty five twenty three. I mean, I look at that as not just being an unfortunate, you know, gaff as far as like, okay, this is a, a mistaken reading, but to me, it's ultimately a different gospel. When you look at, you know, being saved after you can do, as opposed to being saved despite all you can do, because one of those is a gospel of amputation. You've got to amputate all the sin from your life before you can get that grace. But the other reading, the one that you're talking about, is a gospel of imputation that we receive Christ's righteousness and we're saved just by that grace, regardless of whether we are perfect. And I, I guess, you know, does that do you do you see it that way as well? That you know, other people in the church who have this this other reading are actually believing in a different gospel, or yeah, um, you know, um, so you know, I, I will say that uh, that. The, the gospel, at least theologically speaking, uh, that, you know, if an individual is consistent in the application of that interpretation, um, I think it does, uh, it is a, an incorrect uh, understanding of the gospel of Christ. Um, and I believe it can become a significant uh, barrier to uh, legitimate experiences of uh, Christ's atonement uh, in one's life. Now, personally, I don't actually know anyone that takes it to the full logical end. By that, I mean anyone that actually says, you know, 
who understands that verse to such an extent that um, you are saved by grace after all you can do, right? And they understand that all you can do to mean every single time you have the opportunity to do something, you need to take that, you know, like you need to do the right thing, right? That essentially becomes, uh, you know, an advocating for perfectionism, uh, which, you know, I believe pretty consistently that Latter-day Saints have always uh, understood perfection to be only attainable by Jesus Christ in this life, uh, that everyone is uh, afflicted with sin. And so, you know, theoretically, like if we're taking that passage, that interpretation to its logical conclusion, I don't know anyone that could actually follow that, but I don't know any Latter-day Saints that would understand it to such an extreme way that would render basically everyone in the church uh, irredeemable, you know, outside of the grace of Christ. Um, so I typically, uh, for those who do interpret it, uh, in that, in that way though, they do heavily emphasize commandment keeping, obedience, um, moral righteousness and upstanding, uh, before God, uh, as fundamental in order to receive Christ's grace. Um, and there's various other, you know, verses that they might proof text or draw from, uh, in Latter-day Saint scripture as well. Uh, in order to to take this view, um, you know, it, I've never really spoken to any individuals that uh, that uh, advocate for that kind of view. Um, you know, occasionally maybe I've I've talked to uh, a stake president um, where uh, you know they might have an understanding that in order to truly repent from certain sins, you need to absolutely stop you know committing them. Uh, the problem is like you know I would agree there's certain sins that like you know, none of us are bound to likely commit, you know, like most of us are not murderers, you know, like actual murderers. And, you know, in the case that someone does murder or commit like some type of really egregious sin like that, I wouldn't say it would be the most difficult to never do that again. You know, like uh, basically there's some sins that are pretty rare in their occurrence. But, uh, you know, if they were to uh, consistently apply that to something like pride, to something like, uh, you know, lust, or, you know, any of these sins that are far more abstract, that are uh, a natural part of the human condition, I don't know how anyone would be able to 100% always forego those sins and therefore receive legitimate forgiveness of those sins uh, if those uh, verses are interpreted in that way uh, consistently. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think if you have to take it at that kind of face value, it really does become an impossible gospel at that yeah, point. Yeah, I would, I, I would agree with you. Um, so I guess just a follow-up question too. You know, you read that verse where they talk about how the law is dead, but they're keeping it, you know, just kind of as as it's pointing to Christ. So my question is, since it was a dead law, does that mean if they had broken the commandments? And I think you may have kind of answered it, but just specifically, if they had broken it, did it have the power to condemn them at all at that point? I think what they mean by dead law is that um, it, uh, it it is not a law which produces salvation. Um, I, I think uh, that the Book of Mormon depicts the law as important, as commandment keeping as important, but, uh, you know, for certain reasons, um, you know, for individuals who follow the law or obey it or keep the commandments in order to bring it to pass their own righteousness or in order to bring to pass their own salvation— that law is dead. It cannot actually save them. Um, but uh, I don't believe that that means the law is, uh, you know, they, they hold the law to either be unimportant or uh, ineffective uh, for teaching morality or, or things like that. Um, 
because uh, you know uh, earlier uh, in Second Nephi five through eight or two five through eight that I shared with you, um, it, it says that you know men are cut off by the law, um, that no man is justified by the law, right? So similar to uh, you know things you might find in the New Testament, the law is the means by which we understand how dead we actually are in our sin, uh, how condemned we actually are before God. We understand the nature of our sin. Um, so in that sense, uh, yes, the law has the power to condemn, but only in the sense that we act uh, in a way that uh, breaks the law. Um, uh, it, it's our actions, our sinful actions, according to the Book of Mormon, uh, which uh, uh, condemn us. Um, it, it's not an inherent state of sin, um, but rather it's uh, you know how we choose uh, between good and evil. Uh, that uh, determines um, whether or not we are condemned. Um, but another Book of Mormon teaching is that all of us, uh, um, none of us uh, can actually follow the law perfectly, uh, that all of us will, uh, you know, break it to some degree or another, um, you know, and therefore uh, we all have the natural man. We all um, sin, um, uh, not, uh, we don't begin inherently sinful as a part of our nature, but our nature is one in which, uh, you know, we will inevitably sin and not follow the law. And therefore, we need Christ. Did you know that Moses broke all ten of the commandments? Oh, I'm, I'm sure he did. Literally broke them. Oh, oh my gosh. Never <laughs> that is bad, man. Hey, uh, oh, really, really? Let's get this guy out of here. <laughs> yeah, are we done yet? I'm... <laughs> All right, so I'm I'm going to try to bring us back. Um, the, I think that was we had some good follow-ups there and 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 a really bad joke. Um, but I'm going to try. To, Matthew, did you want to did you want to ask something before we kind of get back on track? Well, well, I had a lot of thoughts, and and the what I wanted to talk about would probably just lead us down in a, a rabbit hole. But I just wanted to make an observation that to me, even with the interpretations that we've talked about, the different interpretations where. The second Nephi passage, it doesn't necessarily mean that grace applies only after our works, but it could mean it's in spite of our works, in spite of our efforts. I still see uh, those various interpretations and just all of LDS theology as a whole, their soteriology, their doctrine of salvation. I've always kind of seen it very similar to Roman Catholic soteriology in the sense that Protestantism, as as Michael has explained, we we, we talk about imputed righteousness, we, we talk about justification as a forensic declaration an external declaration by god that you are righteous not because of anything you've done or or any good in you inherently but because of the declaration and mercy of god um whereas in roman catholic theology you receive ordinances which which convey grace to the person they receive grace and then it's kind of up to you to continue in faithfulness to maintain that state of grace and if you sin Mm -hmm. there's there's mortal versus venial sins mortal sins are so grave that they kind of kick you out of that state of grace. Kind of like how you said that there are certain sins in LDS theology that are so serious that they kick you out of, you know, that, that they could uh, cause your standing in the church to be in, in question. So I, I just wanted to make that observation that that's kind of what I've seen in my personal experience mm-hmm. from the Book of Mormon, that even if you accept that, okay, it's not saying that you have to work for your salvation, I see of it more as a as more of a, an understanding of salvation in terms of not something that's declared or given as a free gift, you know, declared by God, but as something that is something that's infused in you, and it's and it's kind of wrapped up in your sanctification. That 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 your standing with God is kind of is is conflated with this idea with uh, sanctification. Does that make sense? That they're yes, not separate I, concepts. Mm-hmm, yeah, and I actually agree with you there. 
uh, and I believe that, uh, um, you know, I, I, I do agree that there are similarities uh, between uh, LDS theology and Roman Catholicism, um, but I would actually find greater uh, similarities between LDS theology here and uh, Eastern Christianity. Um, so a major difference that I observe between Eastern and Western Christianity, Western Christianity having both uh, Roman Catholicism and Protestantism uh, that are both impacted by uh, Augustine, um, is this understanding of sin uh, and grace and or salvation, ju- justification, sanctification. Um, it, it tends to depict these things as, as states, right? So you move from a state of sin, uh, like original inherent sin, to one of uh, justification before God. Um, whereas uh, in uh, Eastern Orthodoxy or various forms of Eastern Christianity, uh, rather than states, uh, it's understood to be more of a process, right? Where, gr- where grace is something uh, that is experienced continually through uh, sanctification, the process of sanctification, um, where salvation uh, is more process-oriented than state-oriented. And I tend to see uh, Latter-day Saint theology as also, uh, you know, espousing one that is more process-oriented than strictly state-oriented, um, you know, in the sense that Latter-day Saints don't just believe that, uh, you know, you have to have faith in Jesus Christ and repent and be baptized or whatever, and you're saved. Um, you know, they also have the conception of enduring to the end, right? Uh, that uh, that salvation could potentially be lost, uh, that an individual can, you know, continue to choose evil, even if uh, prior to that they had chosen grace. Um, and so, you know, this, this I, I think you rightly observed, um, it is more uh, combined with an understanding of sanctification as well throughout the course of an individual's lifetime, uh, which depicts more of a process rather than, you know, I, I can go one day and be saved to the next day, uh, or um, I can go and not be saved one day to be fully saved the uh, the next day. Um, I don't know. I, I, I And I'm not commenting on whether or not Western or Eastern Christianity are uh, superior, um, but in terms of how various Christian theologians uh, amongst uh, uh the history of Christianity uh, have conceived of these pro- uh, these subjects. Um, that, that's kind of been a major trend that I've observed, that uh, Western Christianity deals with states. Eastern Christianity tends to emphasize more of a process. Yeah, um, that's those are really good insights. I just wanted to follow up really quickly. When we were talking about 2 Nephi 25, 23, and after grace you're saved, after all you can do, and, and all this discussion as you've been talking about, I wanted to kind of bring it back to a passage that's often quoted when Protestants say that Salvation is a gift that we're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, that we're declared righteous at the moment of conversion instead of um, growing in righteousness in terms of our standing before God. Is going back to Alma 11. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> this is this is the passage where uh, Amulek and Zeezrom, I think that's mm-hmm. how they pronounced it. It's been a while since I've, you know, I, I haven't <laughs> been in the elders' quorum for a while. So... Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, so they're kind of had this disputation about whether you can be saved in your sins versus from your sins. And I think mm-hmm. that's also a reference later in Moroni. So like in, in verse 34 in Alma 11, uh, Zeezrom said again, Shall he save his people in their sins? And Amulek answered and said unto him, I say unto you, he shall not, for it is impossible for him to deny his word. Um, mm-hmm. And then not skipping it, I mean, basically going to verse 36. I know we talked about not reading things out of context, but... But I don't think there's anything really missed here. Uh, he says, Now Amulek saith again unto him, Behold, thou hast lied, for thou sayest that I speak as though I had authority to command God, because he shall 
not save his people in their sins. So, mm-hmm. and I say unto you again that he cannot save them in their sins, for I cannot deny his word, and he hath said that no unclean thing can inherit the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, how can you be saved except you inherit the kingdom of heaven? Therefore, you cannot be saved in your sins. So it seems like, like you were talking about, I kind of agree that in LDS theology, they see they see this gro- this it's more of a growing process, growing in holy, growing in sanctification, and not having a state in your mortal life where you can say, okay, I know that God looks at me as righteous. You know, it's it's more like you're you're attempting to continually grow, and certainly Christians believe in sanctification where you grow. Yeah. But but looking at this, um, he says you cannot save. Uh, hold on, I'll go back to the verse. Therefore, how can you be saved except you inherit the kingdom of heaven? Therefore, you cannot be saved in your sins. Just analyzing this verse, it seems to me like you cannot really have a true assurance of your salvation until you are somehow completely taken out of your sins. You know, you're cleansed from your sins. Do you know what I mean? I'm not. I'm not trying to misrepresent. I'm trying to to yeah. understand how you would understand this passage because it sounds like you can't inherit heaven unless you're clean. Okay. That's why you can't be saved in your sins. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean you have to be completely purified now in this life? Or is this something that happens in the next life? Mm-hmm. So how, how would you interpret that passage and, and kind of reconcile those those issues? Yeah, um, you know, uh, this passage in particular, um, you know, I'd probably feel like I, I would need some more time to look into it. But just at face value, um, you know, how I might address that um, is the understanding that uh, – um, uh, Christ is, is not able to sin us or save us, um, in our sins, um, meaning that, uh, uh, in our, our, our state of uncleanliness, uh, you know, we cannot actually be saved. Um, that, that state of cleanliness is brought about by relying and accepting, uh, Christ's grace, uh, through our repentance, um, that's that's personally how I understand, um, you know, uh, how um, how one might be rendered unclean uh, is by not uh, repenting of their sins, um, because, uh, you know, various other uh, passages of the Book of Mormon um, talk about how reliance um, and acceptance of, of Christ's uh, saving grace or his uh, his sacrifice on our behalf. Um, washes our sins away with his blood right essentially you know the the imagery that you know we we are made clean uh we are purified through the blood of christ um and i don't think that means uh that you know there's plenty of people in the book of mormon for instance uh that are um depicted as being saved um in this one uh for example uh alma um let's see this would have been uh oh yep this is uh alma the younger um uh, Alma the Younger, uh, in particular, uh, has a very popular conversion narrative within the Book of Mormon, uh, where he begins as a kind of rebel child, or um, I, they never actually comment on his age, so we don't know how old or young he was, uh, you know, when he was fighting against the church. Uh, so sometimes Alma the Younger is a misnomer, but, um, uh, you know, essentially it depicts him as an individual who his father was a prominent uh, leader in the church, um, and yet uh, Alma, his son, uh, rebelled against the church, rebelled against God, committed great sins, persecuted the saints, um, you know, basically really uh, uh, engaged in, in a lot of wickedness. Um, he's then abruptly uh, um, confronted by an angel of God, um, falls into a state of, of sleep over several days, 
um, and in this sleep uh, experiences in vision. Oh, now we would call him Alma the Millennial. Nice. Um, um, in in this uh, you know state of after being you know kind of uh, shocked by the angel, um, uh, he he has a genuine conversion experience where uh, he comes to a knowledge, a full understanding of his sins, um, understands uh, his wretchedness, his wickedness before God, and, you know, uh, turns to Christ for salvation, turns to Christ for redemption. And so Alma himself, um, you know, I don't think, uh, at least as far as the narrative goes, uh, would have advocated for any idea that one needs to be perfect or you know morally uh completely clean or sinless uh before salvation can come alma himself in the course of his life um you know his his personal moment of redemption and salvation comes when he repents of his sins when he turns to christ um and so uh what i what i um what i believe uh with that uh, there's also another passage uh i think it's in alma 36 i wish i knew my scriptures better um, you know, this is why it's important to study religion. Uh, <laughs> um, essentially in one of the, uh, the Alma gives several conversion narratives, um, throughout his life, several accounts of his, um, um, oh, let me see. Yeah. <clears throat> Alma 36 talks about his conversion there. I think that's what you're yeah. referring to. Oh, okay. Here we go. Um, so like verse 11 and 36, this is the angel speaking to him. Uh, he says, uh, if thou wilt be destroyed of thyself, seek no more to destroy the, the church of God. Um, essentially, you know, Alma is then presented with his sins and iniquities. He's tormented with the pains of hell, etc., etc. Uh, he sees in vision uh, or he remembers uh, being taught about Jesus Christ. Um, and it's when uh, in verse 18 at the climax of this uh, chapter, he says, Oh, Jesus, thou son of God, have mercy on me who am in the gall of bitterness and am encircled about by the everlasting chains of death. Um, he says, and now behold, when I thought this, I could remember my pains no more. Yeah, I was harrowed up by the memory of my sins no more. So essentially like, you know, Alma himself, uh, through his process of repentance, uh, or, or coming to God being saved, um, he was not saved when, uh, he was in his state of sin. But as soon as he repented, he was able to access Christ's atonement in such a way that he was no longer in the same state of sin as he was before. He was now forgiven of his sins. He was now able to access that uh, uh, that that uh, uh, redemptive power of Christ's atonement. Um, and so I, I think that's what Alma means um, in in the passage you brought up in Alma 11. Um, because you know if if this is understood to mean that uh, one needs to be por- perfect before they can um, uh, be saved. Um, given that no one can be saved in their sins, if that's what uh, being saved in their sins is understood to mean, then Alma himself would be disqualified by that. But I can certainly understand at face value how um, that can be a, a tricky passage to maybe wrestle with. Um, but, you know, I also uh, think that uh, additional context um, in light of other Book of Mormon passages or even, you know, Alma himself uh, can help uh, clarify what might be intended there. Um, so I yeah I don't I don't know if that was satisfactory or or anything like that. No, that's that's really good. Um, the only the only th- conflict that I that that came to my mind as we were talking about it is this does sound like a very you know Protestant view of yes. being born again. 
And yes. and when you com- when you compare it to other passages like Second Nephi 31, in verse 17 it says, "For the gate by which you should enter is repentance and baptism by water, and then cometh the remission of your sins by fire and by the Holy Ghost," which mm-hmm. impl- which seemed to me like baptism by water and the Holy Ghost is a prerequisite for remission of sins. Do you see what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it seemed almost like it would come into conflict with that with that uh, that uh, that version from Alma talking about how he was converted. But by just crying out to Christ and asking Him to save him, rather than yeah, um, than well, repentance, not, faith, baptism, all that. Yeah, and not just Alma, uh, but also uh, the story of Enos, uh, who prays in the book of Enos for remission of his sins, and uh, um, you know receives through um, not necessarily vision, but divine revelation, let's say, uh, of God directly forgiving him for his sins. Um, you know, I, I certainly believe that uh, uh, forgiveness can uh, come, um, in various forms, uh, outside of baptism. Um, you know, I believe that baptism is important. It's a, it's an outward expression of a, of an inward covenant. Um, the Book of Mormon places, uh, great, uh, emphasis on baptism. Uh, but, uh, there are instances in which, uh, baptism is not a part of, uh, one's, uh, you know, conversion or repentance or forgiveness, uh, experience. Uh, you know, I, I think that's um, uh, probably safe to say as well, as far as the New Testament goes. I, I had one verse, too, that I just wanted to ask you about real quick, just kind of in light of what uh, Matthew was asking. In uh-huh. Mosiah chapter 12, Abinadi is talking to King Noah's priests. Um, this is in verse 31, but he asks them, you know, you said that you keep the law of Moses and and what do you know concerning the law of Moses? Doth salvation come by the law of Moses? What say ye? In verse 32, they answered and said that salvation did come by the law of Moses. And Abinadi had had the chance to kind of say, you know, what you're saying the rest of the Book of Mormon says. But he says, uh, it says, Now Abinadi said unto them, I know if ye keep the commandments of God, ye shall be saved. Yea, if ye keep the commandments which the Lord delivered unto Moses in the Mount of Sinai. So it, mm-hmm. it really seems to imply that the keeping the commandments is is a prerequisite mm-hmm. for salvation here. Yeah, and that's probably a good segue to to kind of get us back on track. Um, so I'm going to try to consolidate the next two questions, Jackson. And and before mm-hmm. I do that, I, I I just want to thank you for spending this time with us. I know it's not easy yeah. to to have questions put to you and kind of you know be put on the spot with with. Uh, passages that that weren't in our notes but uh i I appreciate your you you guys are very gracious i think you know you can all uh appreciate and understand that you know on the spot answers are by no means perfect and so i i just appreciate the space and venue to be able to think through these these things together as we both approach the text yep yep for sure and and again thank you for coming on and and doing this with us so um the next two questions kind of ask us ask you to look at LDS teachings and specifically LDS scriptural teachings from a holistic standpoint, right? We focused a lot on the Book of Mormon and, you know, I think Michael mentioned the Bible dictionary and you, you referenced Bruce R. McConkie. One of the things about him and, and, and why he was so uh, important in LDS history is because he, he was sort of a systematic guy, right? Mm-hmm. He looked at things holistically and tried to put it all together you know, his yeah. book, Mormon Doctrine, while it's not a systematic theology, it's approached kind of from that standpoint to take it, all of probably, the LDS it, it's scriptures. The, yeah, it's probably the closest thing that we've seen uh, in, in Mormonism, more or less. Exactly, exactly. And so 
Um, so for the next two, next two questions, really, I'm just kind of asking you to tackle a couple of passages from the Doctrine and Covenants uh-huh. and kind of bounce that off the ideas you're presenting in your article. So the first one is uh, Doctrine and Covenants 131 and 32, which says, For I, the Lord, cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance. Nevertheless, he that repents and does the commandments of the Lord shall be forgiven. Uh-huh. Which, like Matthew's point, um, seems to place uh, commandment keeping as a prerequisite to be forgiven, right? Uh-huh. Um, and then the second one is Doctrine and Covenants 82, uh, 6 through 10. Verse 10 was a was a scripture, mastery scripture uh, back in my day. Um, verse 6, it starts, And the anger of God kindleth against the inhabitants of the earth, and none doeth good, for all have gone out of the way. And now verily I say unto you, I, the Lord, will not lay sin to your charge. Go your ways and sin no more. But unto that soul who sinneth shall the former sins return, saith the Lord your God. And again, I say unto you, I give unto you a new commandment, that you may understand my will concerning you. Or in other words, I give unto you directions how you may act before me, that it may turn to you for your salvation. I, the Lord, am bound when you do what I say, but when you do not what I say, you have no promise. So the question is, how, how would you understand the difference between the gospel that you find in the Book of Mormon and these teachings in the Doctrine and Covenants, which seem to say that, you know, forgive, forgiveness comes by way of obedience to the commandments. And if you continue to if you continue to sin, um, which which, as you stated, you know, all people do, even even those who are saved Christians, right, still struggle with a sin nature. So um, but 8210 seems to say, you know, if you, if you sin, the, the, the former sins that maybe you were forgiven, you know, for at baptism under, LD, under the LDS view will come back to you. So mm-hmm. the question is kind of like, you know, I kind of see um, Bruce R. McConkie approach, you know, he, he received his uh, his views on, you know, grace and, and, and that kind of thing. Um, and he and he was really one who who spoke out against the evangelical evangelical view of grace. And I kind of see him as receiving that honestly from the LDS scriptures, specifically the Doctrine and Covenants. So can you comment on that? Yeah, um, you know, I, I do want to agree with you that I think uh, not just Bruce R., but uh, also other Latter-day Saint leaders uh, throughout time um, have often felt um, or behaved in ways that are almost reactionary to the larger Christian world. Um, you know, especially when it comes to uh, I, I think, it, I, you know, it's largely unavoidable uh, because not only did Mormonism uh, come out of a Protestant religious environment, um, but it was uh, Protestants who, you know, uh, Mormons primarily interacted with uh, during their early years uh, and then moving west to Utah, um, you know, uh, Protestant Christianity and Mormonism have uh, often uh, butted heads in different ways, um, often have, uh, um, I don't know, espoused different uh, um, theological views that, that run counter to each other. Um, and so I, I do believe that at times uh, Mormonism has both attempted to uh, almost syncretize uh, from Protestant beliefs in order to uh, gain you know, perhaps a more popular acceptance uh, among larger American society, uh, but at other times retrench uh, itself heavily against uh, Protestant ideas, too, uh, in order to differentiate itself. And, and often grace has been a battlefield or, you know, a contested subject uh, between uh, Mormons and, and Protestant Christians. Um, so, uh, yes, when it comes to Bruce R., um, I think, uh, um, you know, he was no exception to that. Uh, in fact, I think he, he perpetuated it to a large extent, 
Um, and I also want to say that I think there's been various uh, misunderstandings uh, on the behalf of Latter-day Saints throughout history uh, towards Protestant Christianity. Um, you know, grace uh, has been a convenient subject to misrepresent at times. You know, don't get me wrong. There are Christians or have been Christians that don't accurately represent Protestant teachings themselves when it comes to grace, right? Uh, that, you know, to Paul, they might have said, oh, well, you know, we have grace, you know, so, may, you know, can sin abound, right? You know, can we can we sin all the more? And, uh, right, Paul w- likely would have said God forbid to them as well. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, I, I understand that uh, uh, Protestants, at least in terms of uh, uh, the, the mainline beliefs, uh, grace is not an excuse for individuals to sin. Uh, grace is not a, uh, you know, just a, a free pass. You know, you can just say, hey, man, I believe in Jesus and you're good. Um, uh, there's there's a greater significance to that. So unfortunately, Bruce are sometimes engaged in, in those stereotypes, too. But um, yes. Uh, so when it comes to those passages in the Doctrine and Covenants uh, and how they relate to the Book of Mormon, um, I, I do I do leave space in my own personal faith for contradictions uh, and differences to exist between books of Scripture. Um, not just on a meta level between, let's say, the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants or the Doctrine and Covenants in the Bible, uh, but also internally uh, within these texts. Um, you know, I, I, I believe that Scripture is the product of revelation. Uh, uh, it's inspired by God. Um, but as with other Latter-day Saints, I do not view Scripture as inerrant or infallible. Um, and so uh, Mormonism tends to uh, emphasize uh, the, the human element in scripture as well, um, in which, you know, it is ultimately inspired, but, uh, there can be internal contradictions. There can be errors. There can be mistakes. There can be, uh, human paradigms, um, uh, mixed in as well. Um, and I don't think it's necessarily, um, uh, always proper to try to separate, uh, which parts are from God and which parts are from man, because, you know, uh, sometimes they're so, uh, intimately linked that, uh, that, that kind of extraction, I don't think is possible. Um, but in the case of verses like these, you know, it's not that I would toss them out, uh, completely, you know, it's not that I, you know, in my present understanding of grace would say, um, oh, you know, that, that just, that's just wrong. Um, like other passages of scripture, these can be interpreted. Um, and so for instance, in Doctrine and Covenants 1, 31 through 32, um, especially 32, nevertheless, he that repents and does the commandments of the Lord shall be forgiven. Um, you know, I, I do personally believe that, uh, commandment keeping is, uh, an important part of the forgiveness process. Again, we're talking about, um, uh, processes here, you know, rather than, than states. Um, and so, you know, I do believe that, uh, um, one can sin, um, you know, feel remorse, repent of it, uh, you know, receive, um, uh, maybe we can call it a, a preliminary forgiveness. Um, but I think God's expectations for us don't just end there. Um, that, uh, the, the, the value, uh, and meaning of forgiveness in our lives grows as we, uh, keep the commandments. Right. And so, um, you know, there are people who, uh, misunderstand, for instance, the atonement of Jesus Christ, where uh, they see, oh, you know, I have a means by which I can sin, 
I can act how I want. I can hurt other people, perhaps, or I can engage in this or that behavior. I can say, sorry, God, you know, and then go on my merry way and and be forgiven. Um, And it doesn't count against me. Um, I I think verses like these, both of them uh, uh, work um, against these uh, perhaps um, misrepresentations or uh, incorrect um, uh, applications of these scriptures or, or scriptures that have to do with grace. Um, and forgiveness um, by, you know, also saying that uh, an individual needs to, you know, engage in in keeping the commandments in order for that forgiveness, that forgiveness for God, if it's genuine, to really mean something in their life. Because I also believe that forgiveness, when we uh, access the atonement of Jesus Christ, and we receive that forgiveness, um, it, uh, it changes us, it transforms us. Um, I think it's, it's in line with, uh, the understanding of repentance uh, as turning away from sin. It requires a conscious turning away from sin um, where, you know, yes, uh, you know, I don't think it's possible for an individual to say, you know, I repent of stealing in the process of the act of stealing only to steal, you know, several minutes later or something like that. Right. Um, I, I don't believe it's just a- action oriented. I believe it's also like an internal disposition. Um And so the fruits of genuine repentance of forgiveness working in an individual's life uh, are, um, you know, keeping the commandments. Um, I I think, uh, you know, moving on then to chapter uh, 82, uh, verses 6 through 10, uh, you ask the question of um, uh, unto that soul who sinneth, uh, shall the former sins return, saith the Lord your God. I think that's a difficult passage. I think that's a. that's one that various Latter-day Saints have wrestled with. Um, I myself, you know, have gone into a uh, stake president or like a bishop's interview, right, and asked the question, right, like, hey, you know, um, I've repented of, let's say, pride, or I've repented of X, Y, or Z in my life. I keep, you know, I keep committing it. You know, I keep uh, uh, falling into the same temptations or making the same mistakes. Does that mean I'm not forgiven? Does that mean I'm not uh uh, you know, uh, the, the, the sins from before have actually come back to, to haunt me, um, or, or fully count against me. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I can't say that I have a good, I have a good answer for that, uh, for that passage. I think it's a difficult one at face value. Um, my blog post, for instance, did, uh, you know, after quite a bit of, of study and, and contemplation, you know, uh, work, it was an attempt to work through the passage of Moroni 32, uh, uh, or 10, 32 through 33. Um, this is a scripture which is kind of on my list of, of other passages that I would like to try to do the hard work of, of working through because right now, um, you know, I'll just be frank with you. I think, I think it's, uh, it's problematic. I think, uh, at face value, it, uh, it's, it's hard for me to reconcile with other things that I'm taught in the faith. Uh, if one understands it in a certain way. And so I would like to further explore it to see if perhaps there's something that I'm missing on my end, you know, perhaps a contextual insight or, um, you know, other verses which might illuminate its meaning. Uh, Because similar to Protestants, I do believe that uh, scripture, you know, interprets scripture or can be used to interpret scripture. Iron sharpens iron. Um, And, uh, um, so I'd like to believe that, you know, uh, th- this is a, a passage with value as well, but 
you know, yeah, I, I agree with you that, that, that verse, uh, that phrase in particular, um, I get hung up on that and, uh, I don't, I don't have immediate, uh, exact answers for it. And I, I still don't. Um, yeah, I, but, I appreciate uh, yeah. you, you saying that, you know, they're, 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 it is a tough passage. And, um, I think, it, I think it's one that can lead Latter-day Saints into the kind of, um, you know, hyper legalism that, that we yeah, talked about I, earlier and, I, I, and, and I, the I feelings of, of, of having a lack of assurance of salvation. Um, because it, it kind of makes you feel like, you know, if you if you try to understand it in conjunction with like uh, Mosiah 319, right, you, you, you end up asking the question, OK, wh- when is someone not an enemy to God then? You know, right. if, if the former sins can return to you, um, if you continue to sin and we will continue to struggle with sin throughout our lives, um, when do you reach a point where you're not no longer an enemy? Um, and I think. You know, I, I really struggled with that as a Latter-day Saint. I know my mom did as well. I've talked about that I, in another episode. Yeah. And I think that's um, totally valid, too. So, but w- one of the things that for me when I was coming out of um, the LDS church was was reading um, reading through Romans and seeing how Paul rhetorically deals with the arguments of his critics. Um, mm-hmm. You know, for example, Romans 6.1, where he says, you know, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound, which you alluded to earlier? Um you know, and I, I read Chuck Swindoll's book, The Grace Awakening, um, shortly after leaving. And, uh, you know, something he said there really crystallized Paul's teaching for me, uh, especially in, in light of some of the things Bruce R. said about, uh, you know, easy salvation and grace and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, Chuck Swindoll said, uh, the true preaching of the gospel of salvation by grace alone always leads to the possibility of this charge, namely, you know, what shall we send all we want? Um So it always leads to the possibility of that charge being brought against it. There is no better test as to whether a man is really preaching the New Testament gospel of salvation than this, that some people might misunderstand it and misinterpret it to mean that it really amounts to this, that because you are saved by grace alone, it does not matter at all what you do. You can go on sinning as much as you like because it will redound all the more to to the glory of grace. That is a very good test of gospel preaching. If my preaching and presentation of the gospel does not expose it to that misunderstanding, then it is not the gospel. And so my question for you out of that is, do you think the LDS plan of salvation taken as a whole, looking at LDS scriptures as a whole, um, is liable to me to be misinterpreted in that way? Um, uh, misinterpreted uh, through the belief that uh, grace allows us to commit sin, uh, yes. you know, in, in kind of a free reign type type extent. Um, you know, I, I mentioned previously that uh, I've often uh, observed uh, LDS church leaders as being, um, you know, like overzealously defensive against that line of thinking um, and often critiquing Protestantism uh, for espousing it at times, or at least, you know, some of its practitioners that might uh, practice it in such a way. So I don't often see that as the view in Mormonism. Um uh, or, or something that, uh, it, you know, is, is a genuine risk because, um, I often see the, the opposite occurring, uh, like we've spoken about previously, uh, where, you know, the, so like that's, we can take that as an extreme of one side of the spectrum, the other side of the spectrum, the other extreme being, uh, hyper legalism, perfectionism, scrupulosity, basically nothing I do is ever good enough, you know? Instead of uh, being saved by grace, therefore I can do whatever I want. It's I can never do enough to be saved by grace, right? That's the extreme that I see uh, in various Latter Day Saints um, at, at times in Mormonism is is that kind of uh, um, line of thinking 
which I, I, I do think is, is ultimately mistaken and I think is, is harmful. Uh, I think both, both, uh, both of those mindsets are harmful and dangerous uh, because one uh, essentially turns into moral relativism, more or less, uh, that, you know, anything goes because I'm saved by grace. And uh, uh, the other one, that uh, grace is an unattainable reality uh, that I can never actually participate in. Um, and, uh, you know, I think both of them um, misunderstand and or pervert the, the actual gospel of Christ. Now, don't get me wrong. I have seen some Latter-day Saints who, you know, uh, maybe they're like stupid teenagers or something like that. They're like, hey, man, I got the atonement. You know, let's let's party it up. Right. Um, but I often see that pretty heavily condemned uh, in LDS scripture and especially so from from the pulpit, um, saying that uh, attitudes like that uh, make a mockery of Christ's atonement, uh, that uh, essentially the preemptive planning to sin, like, you know, I'll sin now, repent later, that kind of mentality uh, mocks uh, Christ's atonement and uh, actually um, is a is a dangerous sin unto itself, that kind of like preemptive sinning. All right. Thanks, Jackson. Uh, I'm mm-hmm. going to skip verse eight because you touched on or chat question eight because you touched on it. Yeah. So we're going to go to Matthew now. He's going to ask some questions. OK. All right. So I got some beef with what you said about Calvinism earlier. Let's dig. Let's, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. That'd be a cool discussion for another time. But um, yeah. but I was going to also point out, too, that our Lutheran friends would be feel left out because we mentioned Arminianism and Calvinism. But Lutherans like to point out that they're not they're different. <laughs> yeah. Like, hey, we're right over here. Okay. <laughs> so we've we've this whole discussion has kind of been around the topic of grace. We've kind of gone around it. We've we've kind of talked a little bit tangentially, you know, certain passages about grace. So let's really dive into it. So how would you view the nature of grace? And does gra- does God's grace impart forgiveness freely, or does grace enable a person to do something in order to receive forgiveness? Um, so the first thing I would say is that, uh, uh, within, uh, LDS thought and even within the, the new Testament as well, um, that I view grace as, uh, ultimately, uh, indicating, um, or being expression of, uh, God's desire to be in a loving relationship with us. Um, and so what I mean by that is that, uh, grace is, what he extends to us, um, you know, uh, on the condition that we enter into um, a, a saving relationship with him. Um, now, you know, I, I won't say that grace is uh, always consistently uh, portrayed or defined uh, across scripture. Um, I think there are uh, various ways in which grace can be talked about, um, you know, throughout the LDS standard works. Um, sometimes grace is, is synonymous with a uh, um, you know, perhaps like a blessing or something like that. Like we all receive blessings from God. Um, uh, but, uh, oftentimes grace, uh, plays a very specific role in, uh, soteriology, uh, in how one is saved. Um, and so the official Latter-day Saint understanding of grace would be, uh, that grace is the enabling power, uh, that God extends to us. Uh, through which uh, we are able to accomplish more uh, than or through which we are able to accomplish uh, something uh, that we would not have been able to do uh, when limited to our own uh, efforts. Um, so in the case of salvation, grace is what makes salvation possible for us. Uh, uh, mankind, humanity cannot be saved of their own accord. Uh, we cannot uh, choose. 
to be perfect. Um, we, uh, all of us sin, all of us fall short of the glory of God. Um, and so God's grace is what allows us to, um, enter into such a relationship that, uh, with him that, uh, uh, redemption and salvation become possible. Um, so, so can I, sorry, I want to yeah. cut in real quick. No, no that's so, totally fine. So, um, we talked earlier about forgiveness and how there were, it seems like there are multiple paths in the Book of Mormon to receive forgiveness, whether it's crying out to, to God or to Christ to save you, as, as was shown with Alma and Enos, or entering this covenantal relationship through baptism, which is how I understood typical, you know, a traditional LDS theology to be, that's how you enter into this relationship, as you were explaining, that you enter mm-hmm. into this covenantal relationship with God, and that's how you receive forgiveness. So is that how you would understand it? And um, who initiates this 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 covenant? Is it God that offers it? He provides it for everyone equally, and then uh, it's up to us of our own free choice to accept and to enter into this covenant. Or is it something that you know? It, or is this grace something that is off? So what I'm trying to say is: is this grace offered conditionally upon entering to this covenant, or is this grace offered? unilaterally to everyone equally and then it's kind of up to us to accept it do you see kind of the distinction i'm trying to make here yes um and i would say that uh, god extends his grace uh equally to all of us in the sense that uh salvation is is extended to all um the book mormon talks about how all are alike unto god all are commanded to to come unto him uh black and white bond and free male and female jew and gentile um that uh you know all of us ultimately uh, will have the the choice to be saved or not uh, to enter into this covenantal relationship with God. So in that sense, I do believe that uh, grace, God's loving relationship, God's love for us, is freely extended to all of us. Um, it, it it is something that all of us uh, have the opportunity to accept or reject, and He extends that grace to us initially, um, apart from anything that we ourselves do. Uh, nothing we do merit uh, him extending that grace to us. We did not earn, uh, we did not do something first, and then God's like, here, you know, uh, you know, let me extend this to you. Um, the, the grace is always extended, and I believe that uh, we have the opportunity to freely accept or, or reject that of our own free will. Okay, and so in terms of how the ordinances go in there i'll go back to the question soon so in, in terms of how the ordinances all fit in there do you see that as just gaining acts greater access to the atonement of jesus or greater blessings of eternal life because if we can enter this relationship through god just through repentance and faith in christ what need is there of the ordinances you know there's all this emphasis placed on ordinances in the lds church so how does that fit in yeah uh that's a good question so um i, I want to go to uh paul's teachings in the new testament um so there's multiple modern schools of thought for how to understand Paul and the various terms that he used, such as justification uh, by faith or justification by grace or, or whatever. Um, and uh, one of the more recent schools of thought that uh, has come about uh, since, I want to say, like maybe the 70s or so, um, uh, popularized uh, by um, uh, a theologian by the last name of, uh, uh, I believe it's Dunn maybe J.P. Dunn or something like that. Um, Anyways, um, it's the idea, uh, now it's called the New Perspective on Paul. Um, I don't know if any of you are familiar with that, uh, but basically it argues that uh, um, uh, Christianity uh, through the Reformation, oh yes, James D. 
DG Dunn. Um, thank you. Um, basically that, uh, Augustine, uh, this understanding of grace that, uh, is, um, prolific through Protestantism, uh, came about originally through Augustine and was carried over through the Reformation, you know, commented on, uh, and expanded upon by, you know, let's say Calvin or reiterated by Calvin. Um, uh, but, uh, that, that Paul in his original context, um, you know, was not so much talking about a dichotomy or a binary of grace and works and which one saves you, um, but uh, rather uh, talking about a concept called covenantal nomism, uh, which is essentially that uh, um, uh, through Christ um, we are able in we are able to enter into a kind of covenantal status uh, where um, you know His grace is freely uh, extended to us. Uh, but our active participation in this grace, our, our place in this covenantal community or status, um, is, uh, not merited, uh, but expressed through, uh, our various, uh, works. Um, within Catholicism, uh, with their understanding of the sacraments, you mentioned earlier, uh, that, uh, the sacraments themselves, uh, become vehicles, uh, through which uh, God's grace is able to be expressed in greater capacity. And that's probably a similar view that I would take with respect to LDS ordinances. Um, that, uh, you know, I don't look to baptism itself in and of itself as what saves me. Um, you know, because otherwise, like, uh, it's, it's really nothing, not much different than a bath, you know, um, uh, unless, unless you're a Presbyterian, maybe, maybe then it's more of a sprinkle. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I don't look at these religious acts themselves as having power in and of themselves to save me or to extend me grace or to redeem me, etc., etc. Rather, these are ways in which I express my covenantal status uh, as a participant in Christ's grace. Um, so rather than uh, the uh, sources of God's grace, uh, they become the vehicles through which I'm able to express my devotion, my uh, uh, covenantal status or, or relationship with God. And in return, um, you know, there's, there's covenants on uh, his end, covenant promises on his end uh, that he makes as well. So um, there's this concept in the Doctrine and Covenants where uh, it's line upon line, precept upon precept, but there's also uh, language that's used uh, of grace upon grace, where in uh, essentially we exchange gifts with one another uh we exchange gifts with god um and that's indicative of a of a loving covenantal relationship um and and i actually do uh agree with um the new perspective on paul school uh that views uh paul when talking about grace or charis um uh in the ancient greek um as referring to this kind of uh um relationship in the ancient world where there's essentially like it's like a patron donor relationship uh where um uh, an individual um uh i believe it would be the patron um receives a gift unmerited um you know by someone that's interested in supporting them and in return you know there's uh just there's a new relationship that's formed between the two of them uh, that is expressed through the continual exchange of, of gift giving or, um, you know, various other forms of, uh, honoration. 
Um, anyways, uh, I, I wish I could articulate all that more clearly. Um, but uh, Latter-day Saints, at least those uh, in the academic community or theologians, uh, tend to be very inclined towards the new perspective on Paul uh, and find it very compatible or, or resonating with uh, with LDS thought. Um, uh, because uh, it does a couple of things. It, it talks a lot about covenant um, and whatnot, um, but uh, it, it does uh, purport to strike at an earlier understanding of grace, justification, um, sanctification, all these things that, that Paul taught uh, that eventually were uh, misunderstood or, or corrupted or um, uh, forgotten through the course of Christian history and especially the Reformation. Um, Anyways, yeah, I, I just recommend uh, to individuals listening to, you know, uh, look into the new perspective in Paul yourself, uh, because it is one of the uh, various debated schools out there. Um, but that's uh, that's kind of how I see it. So uh, long hey, story Jackson. short. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Can I jump in on that? So uh, I thought you might bring this up just from previous yeah. conversations that you and I have had. Um, one, one thing I wanted to mention, you know, is that uh, the 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 view of covenantal nomism that that was kind of popularized by E.P. Sanders and then later yeah. picked up by by um, James Dunn and and uh, N.T. Wright. Mm-hmm. Um, it's 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 by no means a uh, a set in stone understanding that that was how uh, yes. Jews in in Second Temple period understood soteriology, right? So yes. um, there's an article uh, by um, Douglas Moo, and, and he says, um, sometimes, sometime in the early 80s, the exact date is lost in the fog of time. I foolishly agreed to debate E.P. Sanders on these issues. At one point in the debate, Sanders asked me, Dr. Moo, have you read the entire Mishnah in Hebrew? No, I replied, too embarrassed to admit just how much of it I had read. I have, I have, he said, and I don't really think that you have much standing in this debate. He was right. Early reactions to Sanders' covenantal nomism were hindered by a lack of expertise in the Jewish literature. This was gradually corrected as a number of the number of scholars conversant with these Jewish works were able to confirm that covenantal nomism was not quite the monolithic soteriology that Sanders claimed it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm also, you know, aware of of the book by um, LDS scholar uh, Brent Schmidt, uh, Relational Grace. Uh, I'm not I'm not sure if you've read that particular book. Um, but he, he, he touches on um, what you were talking about with the patron client relationship. Yeah. Um, and in, in, in looking at that, I, I, I have some, I guess, some critiques of the way he's approaching it. One, one is that um, he, he seems to want to load the terms um, Charis and Pistis with solely okay. Greco-Roman meanings. Right. Okay. Which, of course, they're Greek terms. But yes. it's I, I feel like he's almost ignoring the fact that. Um, Paul, while he was educated in Greco in a Greco-Roman world, he was a Jewish Pharisee, mm-hmm. right? And so any any usage of, of Greek words, you have to probably understand that he's translating terms that he already understands in a Jewish context into another language, mm-hmm. right? And so he's he's going to bring um, Jewish concept contexts or concepts into Greek. Um, for example. Um, you know, Keras then could be understood as a translation of the the Hebrew term Chesed, right, from yes, the Old Testament, yes. right? And so you you I, I think it's almost too much of a corrective, I I think, and 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 too much of a a look outside of of the Bible to try to understand those terms in, uh, purely in the patron client uh, context. 
Um, and, and, and on reading Schmidt, my, my first thought was, I wonder how he handles Romans four, four to five. Right. Um, because that seems to, to cause a, a problem for that view. Um, I'm, and I'm going to read here from the uh, new American standard Bible, which is a pretty wooden translation of the Greek. Um, but it's kind of more word for word than some other translations. Uh, verse four says now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Um, Schmidt translates that passage. Uh, but for the speculator, commercial gain comes through taking on debt, not through making reciprocal covenants, but for someone who is at leisure, who trusts the one Jesus making the ungodly just, his faith counts as righteousness. And so what he, what he's done there is he's, he's taken his understanding of Charis and Pistis as this patron-client relationship, right? And then he's loaded up Romans 4, 4 to 5 with, with more of a paraphrase, uh, forcing his understanding of Charis and Pistis into it rather than being faithful to the text in Greek as it reads. Um, and it completely changes the meaning of what Paul is saying there, okay. right? Um, Paul's argument there is that grace, you know, doesn't come to sinners as payment that is due, but as a gift that's freely giving, given. Yes. And, you know, what the illustration that Paul uses there uh, in Romans 4 to make that point, it's not a Greco-Roman one. He goes back to David, right? Mm-hmm. And he says, and the blessing of, of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. So, you know, not even N.T. Wright, who's one of the foremost proponents of the new perspective on Paul, translates Romans 4, 4 to 5 as Schmidt does. So, um, you know, I, I, I see what LDS scholars are trying to do there and in, in trying to make use of the, the new perspective. But I think it's a I think they're stepping a little bit too far out of the, the, the principle that that you mentioned earlier, where scripture interprets scripture. Yeah, um, I, I also want to put it, um, say this, that uh, um, I don't believe that the new perspective on Paul is completely compatible with contemporary LDS theology. Right? Um, I, I have seen various LDS academics or theologians. Um, argue or at least align themselves with the new perspective on Paul with respect to the New Testament and then, you know, perhaps uh, talk about how that might inform or relate to the Book of Mormon or how, you know, we might be able to adopt some of those metaphors or paradigms uh, for our own understanding of grace. Um, but I certainly don't want to, uh, you know, claim that uh, uh, either the new perspective on Paul or even, frankly, Pauline uh, theology is as presented in the New Testament uh, is going to be uh, consistently present or even compatible uh, with other verses of, of LDS scripture, um, you know, because I, I do believe that there are uh, differences there. Um, so, you know, I'm certainly open to, you know, various uh, verses on it being challenged. I haven't read uh, Brent Schmidt, actually. Um, I, I Well, I did read an article of his uh, earlier today, um, but it was only with respect to grace in the Book of Mormon. Um, I, I haven't uh, read his book, Relational Grace, um, but, uh, you know, I'm certainly I, I have read a few criticisms of uh, the new perspective on Paul. Um, and uh, so it does seem that, you know, while there may be merit in certain circumstances, it's not uh, uh, uncontroversial or not without its its share of uh, challenges or uh, challengers. Right. Um, so I'm, I'm certainly open to changing my mind on the subject. Yeah, as I for sure. I read it. And, and I, I actually love reading N.T. Wright. I learn a lot from him. Um, I've read yeah. you know many of his books. Um, 
you know, he definitely, you know, although he's a proponent of the, the, well, I guess he would, he would term it a fresh perspective on Paul rather than a new perspective. <laughs> um, but, uh, he, he definitely holds to, you know, that, that salvation comes through, uh, through grace alone, through faith alone. So, um, you know, typical, uh, reformist reformer, um, or reformation principles. So, um, but yeah, I, I, you know, I, I just think some of the ways that I've seen LDS scholars and, and, and apologists online try to use uh, the new perspective, I think, are, are as you mentioned, um, probably inconsistent both with uh, biblical thought and uh, traditional Latter-day Saint thought. So Yeah, and, and I think they're certainly open to critique there because, uh, you know, I um, – Mainstream Christianity is by no means the native language of Mormonism, even though we use similar terms and whatnot. Uh, so, for instance, I am often perhaps uh, disappointed or not fully in agreement with uh, popular LDS usage of like patristic writings, for example. Um, you know, sometimes I think they might be a bit too quick to adopt certain arguments that actually misuse certain materials or misrepresents or I don't know. Uh, there's it's certainly not without its its problems. So. I appreciate uh, you pointing out where, you know, you might take issue or or um, uh, difference with it. And, you know, I, I wanted to ask you something, too, that you mentioned uh, that you see a lot of your LDS counterparts kind of trying to fit the new perspective on Paul into the Book of Mormon. And I, I'm just wondering, like, in your opinion, do you think that Nephite culture, like that they would have understood that at all in that way? New, the new, uh, so only if uh, we assume that the new perspective on Paul uh, is either something that can be historically traced to uh, pre-exilic Israel, uh, which is you know where the Nephites descend from, uh, or unless someone uh, assumes that that same theology uh, is later replicated or or uh, revealed through divine revelation or something like that throughout the Book of Mormon. Um, otherwise, you know, historically, I, I don't believe that it's it would be realistic, assuming that someone holds to a historical Book of Mormon, uh, you know, that uh, in, you know, throughout the thousand years of uh, the Book of Mormon's narrative, that the Nephites are going to uh, replicate uh, Greco-Roman, uh, you know, <laughs> influenced uh, understandings of, of Charis, right? So, um yeah, that, you know, again, that's that's where I would want LDS scholars to be careful about how they portray their usage of it. Um, so I'm more comfortable about talking with parallels uh, than making claims that there's a one-to-one equivalence. Okay, yeah, I appreciate that. That's that's kind of how I was viewing it as well. That it didn't really make sense. Um, you know, some of the passages in the Book of Mormon do have a lot of a lot of parallel to what you read in the in the New Testament. And I think we've talked about some of those tonight, but yeah, it just doesn't it doesn't make sense to me to apply those same you know, that same perspective to the Book of Mormon. It has to be viewed as as completely different. Mm-hmm. So likely, thanks. yes. Mm-hmm. All right. So um I think we already talked about kind of your view of grace in mm-hmm. the previous question. So I think we could uh skip uh what number was it? Ten? So we could just go to eleven if that works for you. Yes. So uh, Romans chapter three, verse 24 says that believers have been justified freely by his grace. So how would you understand that teaching that justification comes freely? Um, so the translation that I'm using is the new revised standard version uh, from the HarperCollins Bible uh, study Bible. 
uh, and it says they are now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So freely as a, as a gift, um, I think those are probably, you know, pretty, pretty parallel or compatible here in, in meaning. Um, but in terms of, uh, in terms of, uh, justification, um, I, I would understand that, um, well, you know what, I would probably have to look at what, um, Paul is saying here in the rest of the context. Um, let's see. So let's just backtrack a little bit. I'll just start at verse 21. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed and is attested by the law and the prophets, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. Since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, they are now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, um, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood affected through faith. Um, yeah. Um, I, I think this raises a, a good question that, that certainly has influence within, uh, you know, plays a big role within reformed thought. Um, the question of, you know, when, when does, uh, when does justification occur? Um, and is justification contingent on anything on our part? Um, uh, you know, I certainly know various, uh, Protestants who would view justification as, uh, you know, essentially, you know, God, uh, chooses to justify you and, you know, you are justified and then, uh, you are regenerated and, uh, sanctified, redeemed, forgive, uh, forgiven, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I don't know. I'd probably have to take more, more time to, to think about that passage. Um, cause I think, uh, at face value, it certainly lends itself to the idea that justification, uh, is not merited, uh, on anything on our part. Um, you know, uh, granted, if I'm looking at it through the perspective of, uh, of the new perspective on Paul, um, you know, this idea of, of gift giving or, or exchanges, um, I, I tend to feel more comfortable with it there. Uh, but going outside of it, um, going outside of that perspective, um, it, it, it I, I would say at face value, it, it probably lends itself more easily to, uh, reformed thought, particularly, uh, you know, perhaps Calvinist thought, which, uh, uh, views justification and salvation as something that, um, occurs to us, uh, through the will of God, um, but not as a result of our own will or our own actions. I don't know. Um, I, can I flip that on you guys and, and ask how, how you interpret that or how you understand that? Sure. Who wants to go first? Christians love to talk about justification. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, well, I, when I think about justification, I think of what Martin Luther was going through. You know, he was a Roman Catholic and he, and I, I kind of see a little bit of you in him or a little bit of him in you, however that goes, because he, he, his whole idea was ad fontos, back to the sources. Mm. Um, he went back to scripture. So when I see with you, when you disagree with certain things in LDS theology, you want to go back to the Book of Mormon, right? You want to kind of go mm-hmm. back to the sources and figure out the theology from there and kind of get past a lot of the traditions. Mm-hmm. So when, when Paul went to, um, to uh, scripture, you know, basically back then, the standard was the Latin Vulgate. So um, in the, when the, he read that passage in Latin, which had become the standard text, it was justificare, which is a way to translate that is is um um and I'm, 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 I'm it's where we get justification basically yeah, but it, yeah. but it, but it wasn't something that was a, de- a declaration so when he went to the original greek 
he uh, I think it's Dakaiosune, I believe is the, is the Greek. I'm, I'm not a Greek scholar. I don't know how to pronounce Greek, but it, it's this idea that it's something that's declared. It, it has very judicial declaration, mm-hmm. a very, very like like you have been talking about. You know, it has this very um, uh, litigious kind of terminology where it's something that the judge declares upon somebody. You declare them to be righteous. So we see that as happening at the point of when you exercise faith and repentance and you trust in the Lord Jesus alone to save you. At that mm-hmm. point, God freely justifies you. He declares you as righteous. This is an external declaration. The person still remains a sinner. They're not completely washed of their sins because that sin nature, you know, we go back to Romans 7. Paul, he laments, you know, a wretched man that I am uh, who can save me from this this body of sin or body of death. We still have that with us, but God changes us. He gives us a new nature, a new heart, and he declares us righteous then and there. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't mean that we and in ourselves, apart from Christ, are righteous. So. Mm-hmm. We believe that's that's the point at which God justifies us. Maybe mm-hmm. the other two's the other two, uh, Michael and Paul, you can fill in the gaps where I might have messed up. No, I, I think you've done a good job. Yeah, I, I'm I'm a proponent of forensic justification, as as Matthew was referring to, right? So it's it's an external uh, judgment of God as as not guilty for the sinner because of uh, the blood of Christ, and and you know what Paul says about that is that we we have peace with God now, right? Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I, I see that in, as in conflict with some of the passages from, say, like the Doctrine and Covenants that we covered earlier, right, mm-hmm. where former sins could return to you or or your 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 ultimate forgiveness is based on uh, your keeping of the commandments, um, which which we all uh, I, I think all four of us seem to agree is, is impossible perfectly. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, yeah, that's how I understand it. Yeah. And I agree with Paul and Matthew, um, as you know, Jackson. Um, I came to believe in forensic righteousness from the Book of Mormon first, you know. The, mm-hmm. And I think, you know, I really came to believe that Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. And there are several verses there that helped me to to see that. And then I found parallels in the in the New Testament. And uh, one of the big ones, and you're probably this is gonna be a surprise of the night, you know, me using the uh, the Book of Mormon here. But First uh, Nephi three and four. The, just the story of Laban, for instance, you know, they're trying to get the the plates from him, and their best efforts fall short. Right? They bring mm-hmm. all of their gold, all of their riches, and it doesn't have any effect. You know, um, and then Nephi goes in, and and Laban is lying there unconscious on the street, and it's kind of like Laban's a type of Christ almost because he has to die in order for this goal to be achieved. In fact, it even says it's better that one man should perish than that a whole nation should dwindle and perish in unbelief. And so Nephi dons his clothes, he puts them on, and then Laban's servant magically believes that he is Laban. And I think uh-huh. any any Protestant would read this and say that is imputed righteousness. The symbolism is so... Uh, so stark on that. I mean, it, it's so obvious because that's what we say all the time. You know, Christ puts his righteousness on us like a cloak to cover our mm-hmm. sins. And then when we go to judgment day, God looks at us, but what he really sees is Christ's righteousness. And and that story just seems to really, uh, really show that. But that's, that's exactly what I've come to believe at this point, that Christ's entire life, uh, to kind of put it in in the language of, of a Latter-day Saint, right? 
that Christ's entire life was actually a vicarious ordinance on our behalf. So Christ was perfectly obedient, and then on the cross, that was given to us vicariously, and all we have to do is accept it. And so that's that's how I view mm-hmm. uh, justification at this point. You know, that once we accept Christ's righteousness, there really is no need for us to do anything else in the same sense that, you know, if you go and get baptized for somebody in the temple, all they have to do is accept it and that's it. They don't have to go and get baptized later or anything because they've already received it vicariously through somebody else who was righteous on their behalf. And, and so I do see, you know, a lot of those parallels and that's what initiated my, uh, my embracing of, of imputation and, and evangelical doctrine. I appreciate you sharing that. Um, you brought up how Laban functions maybe as like a type of Christ or something like that. And you mentioned uh, the the passage that it's better that one man should perish than or one man should die than a nation perish and dwindle in unbelief or whatever. Um, I don't know if you guys have, have seen this before, but that's actually uh, paralleling uh, John uh, eleven fifty, where Caiaphas says regarding Jesus. Uh, you do not understand that it is better for you to have one man die for the people than to have the whole nation destroyed. So it seems like the Book of Mormon, as far as intertextuality goes, does make that uh, some kind of connection there as well. I just thought that was interesting, um, you know, that, that you mentioned that. But yeah, I, I appreciate uh, all of you clarifying your views on that. Um, I, I guess a, a follow-up question that I have, right, um, just to make sure that I'm understanding you correctly, is that from your perspective, the moment of justification uh does that occur before or after the individual repenting of their sins like 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 is one is one justified and then that justification causes them to recognize the state of their sin and their need to repent and be forgiven so it kind of depends a little bit on on how you're defining repentance because i know that that can be a little bit different but i would say the coming to faith and and the trusting christ with your salvation is repentance Mm -hmm. and at that moment you know it says in in romans 4 you know that we that righteousness will be imputed to us when we believe in the one who raised jesus from the dead and it's associated with belief in james chapter 2 as well with uh but it quotes the uh, the scripture from from Genesis saying that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So again, imputation is is associated with belief in these verses. So I believe that you know we are saved while we are still sinners. You know Christ died for us okay. while we were while we were yet sinners. But after that, there is a process of sanctification that takes hold, mm-hmm. and then we become uh, we begin to come closer to Christ. Not that we're ever going to stop being sinners, you know, but, but there is going to be an outward change in our life. And that's what James chapter two is all about. You know, it's saying that there are going to be works that, that should follow you. If you believe he says, you know, show me your faith without your works, right? It's a pretty strong challenge. He says, but I'll show you my faith by my works. Mm -hmm. Essentially the works are the fruit of the true believer, right? Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, Go ahead, Matthew. I was going to say, well, yeah, just as with faith, there must come a good works that follow. You can't really have faith without repentance. So they're they're so inextricably linked. There's a lot of debate as well. Which comes first, repentance or faith? Or, you know, does, are they logically ordered or is it temporally ordered? But I think I think we try to make things too complicated sometimes. 
It's mm-hmm. when you turn to Christ, you have to turn away from your sins. So you, you can't try to cling to Christ as your savior while still grasping onto your sins. And I think that's kind of what you were explaining earlier about uh, you can't be saved in your sins. You can only, or in your sins, you have to be saved from your sins. Mm-hmm. In, in your view, you're explaining that you have to repent. You can't come to Christ without repentance. So mm-hmm. I think I think I think that's what a lot of Christians see that as. Some try to tie repentance into works. You know, like I've got to really just you know knuckle down and like stop sinning all the time. That's what repentance is. But I don't think that is that's that's the biblical view of technically of, of what we're talking about upon conversion. So I just wanted okay. to add that in real quick. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so I, I guess I would see it as kind of like a you know the typical theological kind of three step process right there's regeneration where where god gives a sinner a new heart right that leads to a desire to love god and follow god and 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 come to him and so you know that follows what follows from that new heart is you know a, a a repentance a changing of mind right um and then following from that is justification the forensic declaration that the sinner is not guilty because of the blood of Christ is applied to him or her. Right. And then following from that sanctification, right. A lifelong process of, uh, the power of God changing the sinner, uh, into, uh, the, the, the mind and will and, and, and image of Christ. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. I appreciate that. All right. So did we want to do this last question or should we, uh, just wrap it up? Um, you know what? I, I'm probably good at wrapping it up. Um, cause this one seems like it would take quite a bit to unpack and <laughs> yeah. stuff like that. But, but you know, how, how about this? Uh, you know, I really enjoyed this conversation. I really enjoyed the, the, the candor and the respect and just the openness I felt like we were able to have. I mean, you, you know, I think we can all agree that this totally beats any, uh, online conversation, you know, or exchange. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't know. I, I don't know why we all insist on, uh, you know, trying to do the back and forths or stuff like that, uh, while I do enjoy the questions. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I really appreciate the, the space that you guys have created, uh, you know, to, to welcome me into. And, um, you know, I, I, I liked the questions. You, you gave me good things to think about. Um, so I, I'd love to, you know, return if you guys are ever interested in, you know, talking about some other stuff. Just to, like that i i just appreciate the opportunity yeah hey we appreciate you coming on and and you know appreciate the fact that that it's difficult to answer questions just kind of on the fly and and you know also appreciate the fact that you put some to us uh you know turnabout's fair play so appreciate (laughs) that and uh you know as as you're as you're kind of thinking about those passages from uh doctrine and covenants you know you you mentioned specifically you wanted to dig into the tough passage of, of doctrine and covenants 82 uh, six through 10. Um, I just would encourage you to think about, uh, you know, what Paul says at Romans eight, one, you know, there is now the, therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and, mm-hmm. and try to try to wrestle with that and reconcile how that can fit with the idea of the former sins returning to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, next time you come on here, uh, we'll make sure that you have some, some tough questions prepared for us as well. <laughs> and, uh, no, it's, that, it's, it's, I'm, I'm just looking forward to that Royal Rumble where yeah. all three of you team up against me, the Calvinist. I don't know oh why gosh. you're looking forward to that because <laughs> it's going to be a massacre. <laughs> oh, oh, all right. No, it's it not. No, it's, <laughs> Matt, Matthew knows his stuff. It, it would be pretty evenly matched. 
Um, all I got to do yeah. is turn to Romans 9 and I've got all of you. <laughs> <laughs> oh Just kidding. Matthew wins and it was decreed. <laughs> yes. It was yeah. foreordained. Yeah, well, you know, I, 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 I will say that, you know, even though uh, you have at times, uh, you know, exchanged, you know, messages or, or engaged each other online in conversations, uh, sometimes I think, uh, and, and maybe some of your listeners too, it's easy in Facebook groups to, you know, forget kind of what, what we're ideally there for, you know, ideally, I would hope that all of us are sincerely trying to work through these questions, you know, wrestle with the, the honest challenges of, of faith and, and seek after God to the, to the best of our abilities. Um, you know, I, I can say that, uh, uh, that's, that's something that I'm interested in doing throughout my life. Uh, even though I was raised, um, uh, in both an evangelical and a Mormon context and, uh, have since, you know, kind of become more comfortable with the latter day Saint identity. Uh, I've been by no means decided to, you know, kind of stop searching or stop trying to figure these things out. Um, you know, I, I don't attend my mom's church anymore, uh, but I still, uh, engage Christians very often. Uh, I've been, um, attending a reformed Bible study for the past two semesters. And, um, I don't know, just various things like that, because, you know, I don't, I don't think by any means, uh, I'm, I'm done with my journey or that any of us are. So I think the best we can do, um, at the end of the day is to just try to remain open, uh, try to remain, um, uh, you know, I guess, uh, drawn towards what we find to be true, you know, and, and really seek after it. Um, so, you know, I, I appreciate the, the venue, I guess, uh, where we can explore these things together. Um, you know, where I don't necessarily feel pressured or like attacked or anything like that, because, you know, I think we can all agree that, uh, at the end of the day, it's all in God's hands. Um, you know, that he has journeys for all of us. And so I, I like it when we can support each other you know, through that, through that common journey, you know, rather than, you know, feeling like we have to be opposed to one another or, or anything like that. So you guys are a good group of dudes. I appreciate it. I'm really glad that you you have that feeling coming out of this. So it's what we, what we aim to do with our podcast is to provide a respectful space uh, where we can have conversation. And, you know, again, thank you for coming on your, your genuineness and your openness to seek and to, uh, your dedication to respectful dialogue has always stood out to me. So thank you for that. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for coming. Appreciate it. All right. Well, I, I, let me, let me just add one last thing. I think, uh, if Michael's done anything tonight, it, uh, with his jokes. <laughs> it's was sorry. You broke up a little bit there. <laughs> I, oh, that's too bad. Michael convinced me of the reality of total depravity by his joke. (laughs) You're saying I just, I just won, I just won Matthew's Royal Rumble for him. Yeah. 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 Uh, Anyways, let's appreciate it guys. I'll, I'll talk to you another time. All right. Have a good night. Have a good night. See ya. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Outer Brightness Podcast. We'd like to hear from you. You're invited to visit the Outer Brightness Podcast page on Facebook. 
Feel free to send a message there with comments or suggestions by clicking send a message at the top of the page, and we would appreciate it if you give the page a like. We also have an Outer Brightness podcast group on Facebook where you can join and interact with us and others as we discuss the podcast, past episodes, suggestions for future episodes, etc. We would love to hear from you and hope to speak with you soon. Stay bright, fireflies. You can subscribe to the Outer Brightness podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Google Play, CastBox, Podbean, Spotify, and Stitcher. If you like what you hear, give us a rating or review wherever you listen. Thank you, fireflies. You can also connect with Michael the Ex-Mormon Apologist at FromWaterToWine.org, where he blogs, and sometimes Paul and Matthew do as well. Music for the Outer Brightness podcast is graciously provided by the talented Brianna Flournoy and by Adams Road. Learn more about Adams Road at www.adamsroadministry.com. worthy of the blood that Jesus shed. But now I know that all the works I did were meaningless compared with Jesus' lonely death on the cross where he bore sin. And now I have the righteousness that is by faith in Jesus.
never boast except in the cross of our Lord, through which the world has been crucified to me. And I to the world, so I take up my 